Hey everybody, today Rado talks through episode 13 of his podcast. We are beginning the second year, although perhaps not as well as we could have since I'm a couple of weeks late. Very sorry for that, but it's been a very, very busy couple of weeks. Hopefully this will get me back on track. And today, as always, we're going to talk about a bunch of new games and talk about a top 10 topic and answer a whole bunch of questions which Jen will join me for. So, without further ado, let's get right to it right after this. Okay, first up, new and exciting games that are coming, coming soon to a, well, whatever retail establishment you might frequent sometime this year. These are going to be some very, very cool games that I am certainly excited for, and let me tell you why. We're going to start with Pandemic Iberia, which is interesting because I actually got a chance to play this last year at BGGCon. I sat down and did a prototype playthrough hosted by Matt Leacock himself with a bunch of other people and I got to play it firsthand. What is it? Basically, it is a rethemed version of Pandemic set in Spain in the 1800s during the early uh, expansion of the railway lines all over that country, connecting it all together, you know, the Iberian Peninsula as a whole which is absolutely incredibly important to help spread the, uh, to help fight, rather, the spread of malaria, typhus, yellow fever, and cholera. And that is what players will be doing, taking on the traditional roles as you find in Pandemic, but tweaked ever so slightly to be more historically accurate, or certainly more historically flavorful, and uh, we found it to be a very, very interesting thing. Now, it's been a while since I've played this. If I recall correctly, the two big things that jump out are there's no more air travel, of course, because it's the 1850s, and so moving around the board is a slightly more arduous process. You have to walk from A to B. Now, there is sea travel. If you're at any point along the outer edges of the peninsula, you can very quickly travel from one side of the world to the other, kind of like airplanes. But the other thing you can do is, if you want to spend a fair bit of your time and effort, you can actually build up rail lines that lets anybody ride lickety-split from one side of the peninsula to the other. Uh, And so that becomes a new goal that players are trying to work on to create these pathways to let them get from hotspot to hotspot. Because, of course, like regular pandemic, the same cities are going to keep getting hit over and over and over again. So you do have to build a strong rail network that will let you keep them under control because you just can't fly around willy-nilly anymore. And now at the same time, the other thing you're really focusing on is water. Specifically, um, distributing purified water to uh, function very, very similarly to the, oh, what are they called, the... the quarantine stuff that was introduced in um, pandemic... Which one is it? Uh, hinterlands, the pandemic hinterlands. If I recall correctly, it worked kind of like that. And although it was interesting, you don't actually put the stuff. Oh man, it's all a blur now. You don't put it on the individual cities. You put it on connecting lines between the two cities so that the water can feed adjacent cities and protect them from the spread of disease. 
It was a really solid game, really interesting twists. Uh, the you know the characters all had unique special powers, although they were obviously very very inspired by the original game, and we all had a good time playing. And uh, I know at that point it was still going through a lot of tweaking, a lot of balancing, a lot of testing. And I can't wait for the final thing. Now, the interesting thing about it is. Matt Leacock, Leacock did not design this alone. Uh, and in fact, I talked to him about it a little bit. I, I think, I got the impression that he had such a good time working with Rob Davio on uh, Pandemic Legacy that he wants to do more designer collaborations. So he is working with a Spanish designer, Jesus Torres Castro, to actually put this together. And it's interesting, he's working with a different designer to work on uh, Pandemic uh, the the Cthulhu pandemic, and I think this is going to be something that we're seeing as a series of games going forward. Um, every year, maybe, maybe every six months, another variation, another flavor of pandemic, where he has collaborated with another designer who will bring their own fresh new ideas, and I think that's really awesome. It's a really cool way to keep pandemic vibrant and alive and growing rather than just putting out expansion after expansion after expansion um, you know which implicitly limits you in some ways just being able to take the shackles off and do whatever you want by com- setting the pandemic formula in a completely new circumstance I just think that's brilliant and I can't wait to see what's coming in the future uh, in the meantime I'd really love to play Pandemic Iberia with Jen so moving on we next have Sagrada which I think Sagrada Familia is a famous church, if I recall correctly. It's something like that. Um, and while we're not running a church in this game uh, from Floodgate Games, uh, they, we are constructing stained glass windows, and we're doing it through dice drafting. I just cannot... I mean, dice drafting is just exploding these days. This is not the only dice drafting game I'm going to be talking about today. It's just becoming such a, a widely explored... A mechanism. It's just popping up all over the place. It's funny that uh, I've recently named it my number one favorite game mechanism of all time. So I'm very, very happy to see more new and interesting things. So what are you doing? What are you drafting dice for here? Well, basically, it's a whole bunch of different colored dice, and players are taking turns grabbing the dice. The dice actually represent all the different colored mosaic pieces that will go into your stained glass windows. And there's all kinds of special rules you have to follow for placing them down. And I suspect it's going to be awesome, because Floodgate Games is awesome, and a dice draft is awesome. I um, one of the designers, Daryl Andrews, did a fantastic job on oh, what was it? Um, Walled City, which was a very very cool game, and his co-designer on this, Adrian Adamescu. I see, I'm not really familiar with him. I think he's kind of new to the game, but still, I'm just really really excited by the idea. I, I, Jen loves stained glass windows. You know, I, I I haven't actually seen any pictures of this yet, but I the, the idea of having this grid that you're trying to fill out with all these beautiful colorful dice that you're drafting for and um, having special rules you have to follow, but breaking those rules and it sounds really really cool. Cannot wait. Now, strictly speaking, this is a 2017 game according to. Um, Board Game Geek, but I'd be willing to bet my bottom dollar that it will be on Kickstarter in 2016. So, as far as I'm concerned, it's a 2016 game, and uh, fingers crossed that uh, Floodgate actually contacts me and maybe sends me a prototype so I can do a run-through for it, because it sounds really cool. But anyway, let's move on to Shakespeare. 
Spear Backstage, which is the first expansion for the excellent worker, placer sla- worker placement slash auction game that I did a run-through for last year called Shakespeare. That game was absolutely phenomenal, one of the best games of the year, and now they're coming out with their first expansion that introduces new actors, new costumes, new uh, stage stuff, just a bunch of new stuff, which is Fantastic. I mean, uh, that's all I really need. The core game is already phenomenal. I can't wait to see what they do with Shakespeare backstage. Then we've got Tavern's Tales, which is the next game from Christoph uh, Matsutic, who last year put out Thrash and Roll, which was another one of my absolute favorite games of the year. I'm trying to remember, did Thrash and Roll make my top 10 of the year? It might have. I'd have to go back and look. Now, that was a very, very cool, clever dice worker placement game all about managing and developing a thrash metal band, which you know, Jen and I just absolutely adored. We thought it was so phenomenal. And now, in Tavern's Tales, Kristoff uh, uh, is going after deck building. And it's basically set in a tavern. Your deck you're building up is a group of adventurers that you are trying to recruit, and you have more and more adventurers in your deck that you can use to recruit more adventurers, and, but you're also signing up to go and complete quests, which I believe are going to be your in-game bonus objectives, which you're trying to recruit those adventurers to be able to achieve. Uh, like I don't really know too much about the gameplay yet. The art looks very bright and colorful and cartoony and very, very pleasing and charming. But, like I said, Kristoff uh, did such a phenomenal job with dice worker placement. I'm just really interested to see what he's going to do with deck building. And it's certainly got a very, very cool theme. So that will be very, very interesting uh, coming this year. Tavern's Tales. Then we move on to Shadowscape, which is a new competitive dungeon crawl in the Mistfall universe. And Mistfall itself is a very, very cool cooperative sprawling, card-based adventure game that was very, very heavy, had lots of stuff going on. It was really, really cool. But Shadowscape, uh, from the same designer um, uh, as Mistfall, is a very, very different kind of game. I think, from the description of it, it sounds like it's a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more simple, which is probably a good thing, because, wow, Mistfall was kind of on the, the heavy edge of things in terms of complexity and being able to play. And what I'm really excited about this more than anything else, I love the description of this core central conceit. I've got my adventure character, I'm racing through this dungeon the same time you are, we're both trying trying to get out of there alive with the most treasure and avoid traps and all that. But basically, we have a set of action cards laid out in front of us. And we can use those action cards to move or fight or explore or whatever. But the thing is, after I do, on my turn, after I do whichever those actions I want to do on those four cards, I flip that card over and I get rid of my access to that action and give myself access to a different action. And I just think that sounds like a really, really cool, simple, elegant thing. That, okay, I want to be able to do this right now, but I can't do it right now. Um, And how can I do it? Well, I have to flip this other card, but I don't need to do that action right now. It sounds like a really, really cool idea. Very, very clever. And uh, I expect it might work very well, especially because Mistfall itself was a really, really solid design. And that's why I'm very, very interested in Shadowscape from NSK Endgames. Then we've got Pioneer Days, which once again is going to be potentially me cheating because apparently it's officially a 2017 game, but Tasty Minstrel often puts games on Kickstarter, and so if this one makes it onto Kickstarter, 
it would make sense. I'm just not sure if it's going to be. Basically, it is an old well, old west Oregon Trail Pioneer Simulation style game with dice drafting. Once again, another take on dice drafting, which did I mention I love? And the interesting thing about this is every round you're trying to grab the dice to do whatever it is you're trying to do to you know, keep your wagon train rolling and all that. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Oh, boy. Excuse me, folks. Where was I? Here's a little pro tip. If you're ever going to do a podcast, don't have a spoonful of peanut butter right before you start recording and then just walk away and assume everything's going to be fine because that's going to catch up with you. Anyway, what was I? Okay, Pioneer Days. <laughs> dice draft. Yes. Oh, yeah. So you're dice drafting. You're to do whatever actions you're going to do. I don't really know yet. But the cool thing is apparently every round, not all dice will be taken and the ones that aren't drafted are left behind and start to build up over time to contribute towards big, blooming disasters, I don't know, weather events and whatnot, that will slow you down. I think that actually sounds very, very cool. And then that, plus the fact that this is from one of the designers of Elysium, which was my second favorite, or maybe third favorite game of last year, plus it's from Tasty Minstrel Games, and those guys know what they're doing. They have very, very good taste, and they produce very, very high-quality games. So all that combined means Pioneer days is going to be phenomenal. The only question is, are we going to see it in some form on Kickstarter or whatnot this year? I'll be looking for it anyway. But then we move on to another 2017 game that I am confident will be on Kickstarter, Myth Dark Frontier, which might be surprising to some people considering how I kind of laid into Myth when I did the run-through for that a couple of years ago. But you you have to remember, I thought the design of Myth itself was Absolutely phenomenal, wonderfully designed game, so clever, so many really neat ideas. And it was just, you know, the production that kind of held it back. Now, since I have actually gotten my Myth 2.0 stuff, and I'm looking forward to trying it, just haven't been able to make the time, plus the voters haven't really pushed it very high up on the request list, needs a lot more thumbs before it's going to get covered. But in the meantime, the same developers are bringing out Dark Frontier, which is a cooperative game. It's set in the same myth universe. But um, basically, in this game every day, players plan what actions they're going to be doing uh, in the morning, the noon, and night. Um, you know, And they're kind of programming what they're going to do based on what they know the enemies they're going up against are going to be doing. And then all the plans they've made, all the cards they played to decide what their characters are going to do, get all shuffled up, and then you find out if it actually worked out well. That sounds like a really, really cool core concept. The universe itself, I know, is absolutely you know very, very inviting and attractive. Uh, kind of a not quite cartoony, but not like dark and serious fantasy environment. The the myth universe, and again. These guys have great design chops, and I'm going to take it on faith that they've learned lessons from their earlier Kickstarter adventures, and this one will come out fully baked, and I can't wait to give it a try. So that is Myth Dark Frontier. Then we've got an expansion for Tiny Epic Galaxies, which is very exciting. Jen and I both, well, heck, seems like everybody loves Tiny Epic Galaxies, and with good reason. And so, with this new expansion, I think the thing I'm most excited about is, in addition to being able to launch your ships to go and take over alien planets and colonize them and whatnot, you can now also send your fleets out into the vast, empty reaches of space in this kind of push-your-luck mechanism, which sounds really, really cool. And I'm sure there'll be lots of other neat things in it, too. I mean, it's pretty much a gotta-have-it just because the core game is already so great. Although, the interesting thing is, 
Will it still be tiny epic if you need to have two boxes? Will everything fit in the one box? Time will tell. Then you got Perfect Crime. This is actually a game that is on Kickstarter right now, which I got to say, I am super stoked about. And I'm kind of bummed that the publishers never actually contacted me, uh, Grublin Games, to do a run-through for it, because I definitely would have been into it, because their last game, Waggle Dance, I thought was an absolutely charming and delightful little um, bumblebee worker placement game with dice. It just worked so well. So I'm really, really interested in what their next game is, Perfect Crime, because... The gameplay concept here is absolutely brilliant. It's an asymmetrical game, a one versus all, or, you know, uh, where one player controls the bank, is actually designing the layout of, you know, a, a big city bank. Um, you know, you've got a blueprints and you're putting you know server rooms and security countermeasures in your vaults and uh, setting up uh, what do you call them patrol routes for your guards and you're, you're, you're setting all this up at the same time you're setting that up the other players which might just be one player or might be several players the thieves are planning their heist investing in all the high-tech gear they need and working out what their point of entry is going to be and all that and then you know after both sides have repaired and the thing is much like well, it sounds like much like Stronghold um, from Stronghold Games and Portal Games, that the longer that the thieves take preparing for the heist, the more time the bank player gets to prepare their defenses. And then once the thieves come in, apparently the game plays out as some kind of tower defense thing. I don't know how it works, and it's like I said, it's kind of a shame, because I don't think they have any gameplay videos up either, and I would have been all over that, because I just love the idea of this so much. It sounds so cool. I think it'd really be up Jen's in my alley. Uh, it's called Perfect Crime. Again, you can go check it out on Kickstarter right now, this very day. Okay, next up, we've got Order of the Gilded Compass, and this is very, very cool, because this is the long-awaited reprint, retheme, redesign of Elia Eocta Est, which is a wonderful dice worker placement game. One of the first dice worker placement games, for that matter. I did a run-through for quite a while ago, and we still have to this day. And I know people were really, really bummed when I did the run-through because, hey, how can I get this game? It's been out of print from Elia forever. Well, <clears throat> apparently, the designers, uh, Bernd Eisenstein and Jeffrey Allers, is it Almers or Allers? Let me look at that. Uh, Jeffrey Allers and Bern Eisenstein, they got the rights back for the game. Uh, they've updated with a whole bunch of really cool uh, ideas, completely rethemed it. It's no longer set in ancient Rome. Now it is kind of an, uh, you know, an Indiana Jones-style archaeologist globe-trotting setting, but with the same core gameplay running the whole thing, and it's going to be published by Gray Fox Games. That just sounds so awesome. I'm so excited for these guys that they get to revisit a design that you know they'd had to put in their rearview mirror. They get to, you know iterate upon it and improve upon it. Get, it gets a whole fresh lick of paint. And I, I can't wait to find out more about the Order of the Gilded Compass because Aaliyah Octias was just phenomenal. All right, next up we've got Fields of Green from Artipia Games. And this is interesting. This is from um, the designer of Among the Stars, which was a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, card drafting game about you know building uh, what do you call it um, 
space stations in outer space. And then he followed that up with Dice City, which was a phenomenal, phenomenal game about building up cities and rolling dice and activating your... I mean, just, so, I mean, uh, this guy, what's his name? Vangelis... Uh, oh, Bagiartakis? Uh, uh, Sorry, Vangelis. A really, really sharp guy. This is his latest game. He's actually co-designing it with uh, Constantinos, the, the head guy of Artipia Games, who also designed the last year's excellent Project Elite, or is it this year's Project Elite? Anyway, these guys are getting together, and it's really interesting because this is a 20th century farming simulation, <clears throat> which is so far outside of Artipia's wheelhouse. They always do these fantasy and science fiction settings. Um, you know, they have that really, really cool series of games set in that clockwork universe. But this one is just very kind of grounded in sort of modern-day farming reality where you are doing card drafting again, kind of shades of Among the Stars, but kind of to build up a successful a farm, um, you know, more of it. You know, it sounds to me. I'm not that they've said this, but I mean, the way it reads to me, this is kind of a Seven Wonders meets Agricola kind of thing, which is very, very, very cool. From a couple of guys who have designed a series of really, really rock solid games. So, as you can imagine, Field of Greens. I, I, I cannot wait to try this out. Unfortunately, Constantino just contacted me a couple days ago and said, "Yeah, don't worry, I'll be sending you a prototype." So, I cannot wait to give that. A try um, for when it goes on Kickstarter later in the year. Next up, this is an interesting one. Um, Descent Journeys into the Dark Road to Legend is not a board game. It's an app that you can use on your smartphone or your tablet that enhances the board game Descent by um, changing that game so it is no longer an Overlord player playing against a bunch of Adventurer players. Now the Overlord player is controlled by the app, uh, by an artificial AI intelligence that makes decisions and runs over the bad guys. So Descent can become a 100% fully cooperative game. And I gotta say, that sounds phenomenal to me. I mean, I absolutely love the idea of new and interesting ways to bring digital elements into analog board games. And you'll and this is maybe an example of the best way to do that, to, um, <clears throat> to kind of simplify and streamline heavy bookkeeping, because certainly Descent is a very, very heavy bookkeeping-ish kind of game, much more so than Jen and I normally care for. It's one of the reasons we didn't really you know, enjoy it. But being able to now, Jen and I will be able to play that game together and go up against a, uh, a, a thinking opponent, making interesting decisions that gets me interested in Descent, which is something I thought would never happen again after our absolutely calamitous first attempt at that. So I cannot wait to try this out. I am super stoked about Descent Journey into Dark Road to Legend. which I think it's actually available for download right now. I need to go check that out. But anyway... Next up, we've got Rocky Road Alamode, which is the next game from Green Couch Games. And I've uh, thought the last couple games they did, Fidelitas and, what was it, uh, the Treehouse game, the best little treehouse. I thought those were both sweet, charming, really wonderful little light family gateway-ish type games. And that's what they're doing again, this time where players are running ice cream trucks. And if you know anything about me, you know um, I have got the biggest sweet tooth for ice cream in the universe, so I am immediately drawn to the subject matter, but that aside, the gameplay is what really pulls me in because the entire game, it's a card game <clears throat> where you lay your cards out. Ah, oh, man, hold on a second. Sorry, folks. Mm. Throat dry. Anyway, 
it's a card game where you create a time track like Thebes or Glenmore or whatnot. And as you move your ice cream truck, and, you know, and I guess this time track kind of represents the neighborhood. And so you can move your truck way far ahead, several blocks up ahead to be able to get the ideal spot to sell all your ice cream. But then that means you're giving your opponent lots of opportunities to catch up. The Time Track is an absolutely phenomenal gameplay mechanism that doesn't get near enough love. It should really appear in a lot more games. And so and I love the idea of this, a theme I really like, probably a small, nice portable game, and the entire game is about the Time Track. So all of that sounds really, really nice. I'm very, very excited for Rocky Road a la mode. Then we've got the Pirate Republic. And now this is interesting. <clears throat> I have to admit, when I first heard about this, I kind of dismissed it out of hand. It's a big, sprawling, rollicking, very down-to-earth, very grounded, very historically accurate, apparently, pirate simulation. This one isn't one that has releasing of the Kraken or undead pirates or anything like that. It's really much more about you know the real pirate code and parlay that was true. I mean, apparently... A lot of historical research has gone into this game. And what's really, really interesting about it... And, you know, so I heard all that and I thought, well, that sounds really cool. But man, it's probably not going to be the kind of game I like. It's probably going to be much more like a Merchants and Marauders style Ameritrash experience, which is the last thing Jen and I are interested. Running around, attacking each other, and um, just... Okay. But then I saw... Undead Vikings video because a Pirate Republic is on Kickstarter right now, and I actually okay, what the heck? I'll, I'll give Lance a chance to sell me on it, and he totally did. Because as it happens, this game is, if you want to, can be played 100% cooperatively, and that is very exciting. Because I, I, I will. Heck, I grew up on a boat, um, you know, 42-foot steel hull sailboat that my dad built. So you know, the allure of the open sea is one that pulls on me strongly, and it always has. And who doesn't like pirates? But, you know, generally, all the pirate games out there are always very cutthroat affairs. You know, kind of almost by necessity, because pirates are cutthroat. But here's one where players actually work together. And I gotta say, Lance's video made it look really, really good. So I have gone from, like, total zero interest to this being very, very high on my watch list. Like I said, it's on Kickstarter right now if you want to go check it out. That is The Pirate Republic. Let's see. Just a couple more now, folks. Deus Egypt, which is a very, very cool thing. It is the first expansion for Deus, which came out, what, in 2014, I think? And you may remember that Jen and I absolutely adored Deus. It it probably would have been my number two or number three top-rated game of the year. Wonderfully brilliant card hand management system, area control expansion thing. I mean, it just worked so well. Um, you know, the multiple engines you were building, I, I just everything was just so phenomenal. The presentation, loved it so much. But ultimately, had to send it away, had to trade it on, because for Jens and my taste, it had too much player versus player stuff. Players stealing from each other, players trying to undercut each other, players trying to hopscotch over each other and block each other. Um, you know, a lot of people said, no, it's not that bad. But you know what, Jenna? I mean, we gave that game a lot. We loved it so much. Uh, I played it like a half a dozen times and we just couldn't do anymore because the better we got at it, the more cutthroat it became. Too much so for our Care Bear sensibility. So, it was always a heartbreaker. But... 
with this first expansion, which introduces this whole Egyptian theme to it, well, that sounds really cool, but apparently there are 96 new cards, and these cards... Um, you know, and they, they come in the you know the same color groups. They can replace the old cards, and you know, and you can mix and match them. You can replace some of the old colors and some of the another other colors. And so, what I'm excited for, what I'm hoping for, what my fingers are crossed is that this thing will allow, with certain ways that you can mix and match the old cards and the new cards, will allow to have a more Care Bear friendly live and let live. Look, I'm just trying to run my empire. You run your empire. Let's not butt heads on. It kind of thing. If it can provide that, I will be so thankful to have Deus back in my life. So I cannot wait to find out more about Deus Egypt. Then we've got Tiny Epic Quest. Designer Scott Alms and Gamelin Games are bringing us yet another tiny epic game. And I gotta say, these TE games are always wonderfully cleverly designed little boxes of joy. Absolutely love Tiny Epic Defenders and uh, Tiny Epic Galaxies, a phenomenal game. And so, uh, Tiny Epic West was interesting. Uh, I, th- I thought it was a really, really solid design, but it just didn't, wasn't a good fit for me in Gen, but I really liked it. Uh, but anyway, Tiny Epic Quest is basically a high fantasy adventure game of traveling around the world and collecting resources and going on epic adventures and stuff like that in a tiny little epic um, footprint. So, what's not to love? And the game also features a very, very heavily um, uh, implemented push-your-luck thing of how far are you going to push yourself as you go deeper and deeper and deeper and try to stay out in the wilderness longer and longer to collect more and more. Uh, I, I've just got the utmost face in in Gamelin Games, and Michael Coe, and Scott Alms. They haven't let me down on any tiny epic game. Even when it wasn't one that was going to work for me and Jen, we still thought it was clever. We still thought it was innovative. And this one... There's no particular reason to think this. we're not going to enjoy this as much as we have Galaxy or Defenders. That is Tiny Epic Quest. And now, the last game I've got to talk about today, folks, is called Clank. Or I should say, Clank! Exclamation point. And this is a deck-building dungeon crawl game where uh, players are all thieves competing to sneak around in the dungeon and pilfer the most loot without getting caught by the dragon. Sound familiar? Always a very, very nice setting. I am very confident of that. And um, a big focus of the game, like I said, is being stealthy, being sneaky, trying to avoid making loud clanking noises, which I can only assume is maybe those are going to be the the junk cards you have in your deck. I'm really, I don't know much about it. The main reason this went on my list is because it is from publisher Renegade Studios. And man, they th- these guys at Renegade, I have been very, very impressed by their pedigree, by the designs they have been choosing to put out. They really seem to be on fire. They're a really strong up-and-comer. Um, and you know, Clank, which is from a first-time designer, I think, still, um, just the fact that it's coming from Renegade is what pulls me in and gets me interested and makes me want to know more. That is Clank. And that is it, folks. I don't know what that was at. Like 15 new games that all sound very cool, very exciting. Well, I think I'm going to take a breather right now because, man, I need some more water. I am out of practice. I take two weeks off from doing these podcasts. I just fall apart. My pipes. My pipes. Tell you what, folks. I'm going to get some lubrication. I'll be right back. (music) 
Hey everybody, okay, let us move on to revisiting my most recent top 10 topic, which was top 10 gameplay mechanisms, which, I have to admit, oh man, turned out to be such a bummer. I was so excited about that list, I, you know, I put a lot of thought into it, and I really, really enjoyed thinking about it and talking about it, and I was really happy with the end result, and I put the video up, and then I just get buried under an avalanche of, oh, um, just mechanic mechanism mechanism or uh, wordplay um, oh, ah, all this kind of stuff of uh, because I just I happen to mention right up front that yes I call them mechanisms um, when somebody says I really like that gameplay mechanic it just sounds weird to me and some people Quite a few people seem to think that that was me personally attacking them and being uh, completely out of touch with the fundamental function of language, and I was being pedantic, and it was just awful. I mean, for a few days after I put that video up, I so bitterly regretted ever even making it. It was such a huge bummer. Because I just wanted to talk about the mechanisms. But all anybody wanted to do was go on about, you know, I mean, it got to the point where there were so many people hitting me, I just actually wrote up and copied and pasted and just came up with a standard reply. Here's my reply. I post this, I don't even know how many times, in how many different places and emails. Strictly speaking, mechanics is the study of how something works, while mechanisms are the individual processes by which it works, and a mechanic is someone who fixes those mechanisms. Over time, mechanics has taken on additional meanings uh, to be the viable plural for both mechanism and mechanic, which are different things, which makes things muddy, as English is so often is. However, as I said in the vid, it's cool for anyone to use whichever term they like. No skin off my nose, smiley face. And I really hope that's the end of it all, oh, because now just thinking about it again, ah, particularly because, you know, I mean, like I said, people thought I was actually attacking others for using the word game mechanic. I don't care if you use the word game mechanic. Yes, it sounds wrong to me, but if you go back and listen to what I said, I specifically said, verbatim, yes, I'm one of those people. That was me mocking me, not mocking you. Um, whoever you are out there in the internet who was offended by me calling into question your use of language. I apologize you felt that way, but I was mocking myself and my own hang-ups. I don't care if you call it a game mechanic. That's great. It'll always sound wrong to me, but I know what you mean, so there's no harm, no foul. So anyway, sorry. Oh, man, it was just awful. I mean, I actually seriously thought about taking the video down. But anyway, it's all behind us now. Let's actually talk about gameplay mechanisms, which is a fun thing to talk about instead of word wars. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Probably the single biggest thing that got asked over and over and over again, where is worker placement? Why didn't you list worker placement? Um, you know, I kind of did because I hedged my bets and had dice worker placement, kind of, sort of, but not really. But why isn't worker placement, you know, arguably the most popular, widespread, well-loved Euro gameplay mechanism out there? Why didn't it make my top ten? And, I, man, I, I have to admit, I would probably have to do a lot more soul-searching to find that out. I am equally surprised with this as I am when a while ago I did my top 10 must-have games and not a single worker placement game made that list. I Don't get me wrong. I love worker placement. I enjoy a lot of worker placement games. 
my number two game of all time, um, Agricola. It's a worker placement game. Although, to be fair, Agricola doesn't make my top ten, my top five, my top two because of the worker placedness. I mean, the worker placedness is fine. But um, what makes that game for me is the cards, the long-term planning, you know, having to work out an overall strategy when you first sit down for 10 minutes and try to figure out what cards you're going to use and then make that strategy play out to the best of your ability. That's what, I, that's what puts Agricola so high for me, not the worker placement, which is why it didn't make my top 10 worker placement game list when I did that a long time ago either, and that really um, ticked off a few people as well. But um, yeah, why... I, 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 I like it. I guess I would even say I love worker placement games. But man, to really get my attention, vanilla worker placement doesn't do it. I guess maybe it is overplayed. Maybe there's just too much of it. Because to really get me excited about a worker placement game, you've got to do something really cool with it. Like bumping. Like using dice. Like workers who have special um, you know, attributes. You know, oh, I've got scientist workers and engineer workers, and they do different things. Like uh, workers that have uh, you know um, um, values that define how much they do when you place them in different things, um, like workers who can evolve over time. There's a lot of things you can do to really pump up worker placement. And the thing is, I guess, when I sat down and thought about it, and I thought about the worker placement games I really love... Um, just worker placement alone isn't enough. Just taking, having your little squad of dudes who you send out there into the world. And don't get me wrong, I understand why people love worker placement so much because the thing that really strikes me about it is it's a gameplay mechanism that allows you to feel like you actually have some kind of personal projection into the world. Yes, I myself... Like most Euro games, which are all at their heart economic simulations where you are some nameless virtual middleman who is pulling strings to manipulate economies. That's pretty much what Euro games are. And you know, for a lot of thematic gamers out there, for Euro Trash fans out there, they find it very, very off-putting to not feel like, no, that's me. I have to be in this world. I have to be moving around. Worker placement is a great way to bridge that gap because, yeah, I myself might not be in there, but that's my little crew of dudes. And I'm moving them around and I'm doing something and I now feel connected to the world. So I totally get why that is an attractive and important and meaningful gameplay mechanism for me. But for me, it's just like, yeah, it's nice. It's good. It works. Um, but you really got to pour a lot of secret sauce on it to get me excited. And because of that, I just couldn't, in good conscience, make it into my top 10. And so that's why, work- and like I said, that was when people weren't you know, calling me whatever they wanted to call me about the use of the word mechanic versus mechanism. Um, that was the number one asked question. Where was worker placement? Uh, variable player powers was another one. You know, I thought about that, and that was another one that surprised me too when I realized I really didn't need that um, to have a really, really great game experience. I mean, I love variable player powers. I love the, you know, the variety it adds to setup and all that, but it's just not something that I need. It's something that I like, but it's not something that makes me say, oh my gosh, I must play this game. Unlike, you know, pretty much the top 10 things I did actually talk about. Those were all things, you know, the simultaneous action selection, um, you know, card drafting, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, dice drafting, and um, you know, th- those are things that get me really excited that pull me in. And variable player powers doesn't. Auctions, same thing. I, I, there are so many great auctions. Someday I'm going to do a top 10 great auction games, which they'll all be working well for two players. Really enjoy auctions, but just not enough. And then this was actually surprised me. Several people asked, what about Legacy as a gameplay mechanism? Why didn't you mention Legacy as one of your favorite gameplay mechanisms? Well, the answer to that is because I don't really think of it as a mechanism. To me... That's more of a game feature. You know, the the gameplay mechanisms of Pandemic are multi-use cards, um, you know, resetting event decks, um, resource management, stuff like that. Those are the mechanisms in Pandemic Legacy. The legacy portion is not an actual gameplay. That is a meta consideration. That is something that happens outside the game that, you know, twists and manipulates the game. It adds an incredible sense of connection and importance and gravitas to every step you take, every move you make. But though it's not the actual mechanisms you use to take those steps and make those moves. So while I absolutely love it, I mean, that would have to go under like top 10 features of a game that I would really love. So... That's pretty much it. Um, next top 10 topic that I'll be revisiting will be my top 10 two-player only games. And I got to say, I already filmed the video for it. It'll be going up in a couple days now, I think, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a really tough one to do. There were so many heartbreaking games, so many games I wanted to put on that list that I just couldn't. So I'm looking forward next month to revisiting it. And heck, maybe I'll talk about um, my next top 10 um, because there were so many that deserve so much cool credit. But anyway, folks, that's it. I'm revisiting the top 10 gameplay mechanisms topic. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, if you hold on, we'll be right back with Jen for the monthly Q&A. Okay, everybody, time for the questions and answers. And as always, please feel free to send any questions to questions at rotto.com. I appreciate lots and lots of questions because I'll be honest, you're just making my life easier. I don't have to come up with lots of interesting segments for the show if you just ask enough questions every month. So, Jen, (laughs) I can just sit down on the couch and relax and talk about stuff because that's just kind of ideal. So remember, questions to questions at rotto.com and don't forget to throw a few in for Jen every once in a while because as it turns out, for the most part, these tend to be kind of rotto-centric and Jen's here to answer questions, but we'll see how it goes. And, uh, you know, they can be about games, they can be about life, they can be about anything. And as we started doing in the last podcast, we're going to do all the game-related questions that came in up front and then after all that's over, we will then go on ahead and skip ahead. Or the, the final section will be non-game related stuff. So that people who don't care about non-game related opinions that Jen or I might have can bid us adieu. So Honey Pie, are you prepared? I am prepared. Alrighty, then let's start with our first question from uh, Justin. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Actually, this question came in last time, and it was a big, gigantic wall of text. And I'm like, ah, I can't read that right now. Justin, I'll get to you next. And here I am. And once again, Are you showing with the my... big wall of text? Mm-hmm. Mm. Did Let's you look see. at it before you started? Honey this? pie, why don't you tell them what you're doing right now and fill for a little bit. And I'm actually going to read Justin's email really quick. <laughs> All right. Well, I am actually threading all of, well, not all of them, about 50, not not all at once, of course, uh, of the 
dice bags that my mom lovingly crocheted as part of the Rado rewards for the Kickstarter. And so I thought I could do that fairly quietly while I sat here and uh, thought about whatever kinds of questions you people might be asking us. So that is what I'm doing and it is good fun. And uh, it's, it's nice, it's nice to touch the things that my mom made and you know, kind of co-create with her. So I am just as happy as a clam. Was that enough filling? It's a long email. Oh dear. I don't know why he didn't read that ahead. I should have read it ahead. <laughs> I've got a pause button right here. Okay, folks, I'm going to be right back with Justin's question. <laughs> okay. Okay, and we're back. And I have now successfully made it through Justin's epic tome, which he ended with, Thanks for taking the time to read this giant wall of text, Justin. <laughs> I have made good on my promise. And buried amongst all of this was a, a question about the relative gameplay experience that video games provide as opposed to board games or traditional pen and paper role-playing games. Because his observation was that traditional role-playing games, Dungeons & dragons type stuff, provides an experience that really none of the other contemporaries can resolve because you have a real human storyteller who is crafting uh, you know, a rich and evocative world right there in front of you. It's a collaborative exercise. And, uh, you know, and so that's its own separate thing. That's kind of on the mountaintop, the, uh, the ultimate in fantasy adventure experience. And then um, on the other end, you've got uh, modern board games that don't really have a lot of the strong storytelling, but they sacrifice that for much richer and more interesting and engaging actual gameplay mechanisms, which is certainly true. You, uh, you know, most pen and paper role-playing games, it is all about, well, I'm going to roll the d20 against my agility to see if I climb the slope. And, you know, that's just kind of the minutia. That, those are the, the, the raw technical bits you got to get through to get to the heart of what makes those things exciting, you know, the cool and interesting story. And, um, but there's an interesting thing going on, and he uses Gloomhaven uh, as a specific example of board games that are trying to hybridize and capture more and more of that pen and paper storytelling experience. The big, expansive worlds, the characters who you can level up for months or even years at a time, you know, the elaborate combat systems and all that. And in doing that, they are kind of moving away from the strengths of what a strong board game is, especially a Euro that Justin mentioned, because obviously he's a Euro player like me and Jen, and uh, they're becoming closer and closer to what a video game like Skyrim or Knights of the Old Republic might offer. And his question is, why would he even play a game like Gloomhaven when I can turn on my PlayStation 4 and get all of those features, but multiplied a hundred times by having the dirty upkeep and rule monitoring taken care of by a computer? I just don't see the point. Um, and so really his question is, you know, about this trend towards bigger, you know, because it's, it's not just Gloomhaven, you know, I mean, obviously you got your Descent, you got your Mice and Mystics, you've got uh, Sword and Sorcery, you've got Galaxy Defender, you've got um, that new Warhammer Tower game, the Silver Tower, you've got a lot of games, these big box, tons of minis, epic fantasy adventure games, and they really do kind of capture a lot of the same... Uh, je ne sais quoi, of a video game, you know, from Bethesda, you know, in the Elder Scrolls series or something like that. Why play a board game 
if it's abandoning what makes it strong when a video game can do it so much better. Honey Pie, do you have, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Okay. I do have actually a thought. And the reason you would do it is... And Jen, by the way, I didn't read that to her at all. This is, this is just off the cuff. Um, Jen has lifted up her glasses. <laughs> oh, dear. Because, I... by the way, we're both oh. old now and we have to use reading glasses. It's horrible. Yeah. Well, what happened to us? Well, but anyway. It's good to be able to see. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Actually, we just came back from Istanbul and we were in Istanbul trying to read little things on various stuff and we didn't bring the reading glasses <sighs> with us. And we thought, oh, dear, we've reached that point where actually not only do we need reading glasses, we actually need them Yeah. to read. As opposed to them just being kind of nice to have. Yeah. But... Anyway. We're talking about games. Yes, I've just put my reading glasses up on my forehead um, since I'm looking at my husband talking to him, and I can see him perfectly well. The thing that I was going to say about the question is that the reason you'd want to play that board game as opposed to video game is still for the experience of sitting across the table, looking at somebody, seeing their reactions, and having that shared experience. I just don't think that you really get that with video games. I don't think it's possible. Even even with a headset on, even talking to them directly, you just you're not seeing facial expressions. What about even sitting on the same couch, playing the same game? Mm-hmm. Oh, we've done that loads of times, but mm-hmm. still, your attention is at the TV, isn't it? Yes. It's not at your co-player. Mm-hmm. So that would be my response. That would have been my response too. <gasps> you have saved me the trouble. That's that's what it is. Wow. I mean. There are things that video games do wonderfully. And I don't mean to... I mean, heck, the last major game I worked on, Brink, was um, a game all about... It was basically a big social experiment in kind of a shooter form. A game that sensibly intended to turn multiplayer first-person shooter gamers into... I'm sorry, first per, single-player first-person shooter fans into multiplayer first-person shooter fans. I mean, which is a whole... <laughs> and it's apparently hard to say. Um, but anyway... Yeah, Jen nailed it. It's it's about the human connection. That's something that video games can't do. Even when you're playing a game like Cookies and Cream, and we're sitting on the table together. I mean, I, I, on the couch together. Even Cookies and Cream, when we had to share the same controller, it's still it's just not the same. Um, you know, because of the real time nature of video games and the go go now. Uh, you know, that, that, there's there's certain upsides to that. It pulls you in. It's evocative. You can lose yourself in these worlds. It's to become more visually high fidelity. It's, you know, as they get closer and closer to finally smashing through Uncanny Valley, it's incredible what we are able to create these days in the video game format, but it always is moving further and further away from that human connection. And of course, that human connection is what you talked about that is so wonderful and lovely and untouchable for a pen and paper. When you have a real strong storyteller, um, you know, weaving exciting tales of adventure and you living through those, uh, you know, that's all about human connection. And while it's true that a Gloomhaven cannot replicate what the Dungeon, a good dungeon master does for you, it does still create interesting and memorable and meaningful stories uh, because of our shared trials and tribulations as we try to make it out of whatever dungeon alive that we might have been trying to go through. We are still sharing those experiences and we spend just as much time, as Jen said, looking in each other's eyes as we do looking at the table. And that's what makes it special. Now, totally as an aside, you got to check out Gloomhaven, dude, uh, because I think you've got the wrong end of the stick. It is not. I mean, 
I, I get what you're saying about you know the tedious and the odious bookkeeping and you know the million and a half little persnickety rules and all the stuff that kind of typifies these bo- these hybridized board games as you call them. I totally get that, and that's a turnoff for me and Jen as well. The beautiful thing about Gloomhaven is. It's a Euro in Ameritrash clothing. Much like Legends of Andor before it, this is a brilliant um, card-driven hand management system that drives all the action. It's a wonderfully designed thing. I mean, even if it didn't have all the legacy or the big epic storytelling and all that stuff, just the core gameplay was was so good. I mean, you got to check it out. But that's totally as an aside. But thank you, uh, Justin, for your very well-composed and very thought-provoking comments. question. Uh, And my apologies, it took so long to get to it. Perhaps next time you'll write a shorter one. Um, (laughs) But now, let's move on to new stuff. And Er oh, Eric. Oh, I remember this. Um, Eric asks, what are your favorite TV shows? What are your favorite songs and bands? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Uh, This actually kind of came up on the Rado Runs Through Guild, because we were talking about, hey, how come... You know, the voters never have me do top 10 topics that aren't game related when they come up in the votes, and people just don't want it. And I always said, Well, hey, but if you ask me a question, I can always do it in uh, the podcast. And so Eric has made good on that. Well, we'll come back to that in a second, Eric. Well, actually, to be honest, we have talked quite a bit in recent podcasts about songs and bands. And I think I, we've kind of talked a bit about TV. Well, we'll come back to that in the last section. Let's move on to Rob. Rob also has a non-game related question, so we'll come back to that also. Now let's move on to Ricky Royal of Box of Delights. Folks, if you like Rotto Runs Through, but you think there's not enough English accent, you really need to go check out Box of Delights on YouTube. Ricky does a really great video series. He runs through games like I do. Uh, you know, he puts a lot more work into it than I do, too. Um, he's a great guy, and he's British, and he deserves more viewers. But anyway, Ricky wrote the question, Did, I, did you have any hopes, dreams, or aspirations when you sat down and recorded that first video? Was this a simple hobby? Thrown, or has this simple hobby thrown an unexpected curveball at you? Ricky, I will not lie. I believe I've admitted this freely in the past. Yeah, I, I, I picked up the camera because I was kind of hoping it would lead to free games. I'm, I'll say it. I'll be honest. Um, because the situation was, uh, I had quit my job, and I was done working, although it turned out I wasn't, but I thought I was at the time. You hoped that you were I certainly working. hoped that we were going to go for that early retirement plan that Jen and I had been talking about and working very, very hard on since our 20s to retire by our mid-40s. And, uh, okay, we're going to do it now, gosh darn it. We certainly and, could have if we hadn't lived in England, which is very expensive. Yes, that's the problem. More importantly, Ricky, you will understand, we lived in Guildford, yep. which means we might well have been living in downtown London. So Downtown. Yeah, there I know. There is no downtown. Yes, whatever. Um, But anyway, so uh, the the in theory it worked on paper. Jen had done the numbers. In theory, it might have worked, but it was very nerve wracking. But one thing was definitely for sure: we were done buying board games. Too expensive. Couldn't do it. And I'm like, well, I guess that's okay. But man, I still like board games. And Tom Vassell gets free board games. Maybe I could do, and yeah, I, I, I totally. I mean, that's not entirely true. I mean, it had been something I had been thinking about. Plus, I'd been thinking, oh, look, if I'm going to be retired, I need a hobby. 
Um, and, you know, while I would love to say just playing the board games is my hobby, I don't know if that would work because Jen's not willing to put as much time into it as I am. I mean, I'll, I'll happily play five games a day, but Jen likes to do other stuff as Jen it happens. Jen likes to make things. Yes, and, and, and whereas me, I just like to play things. So um, I thought, well, you know what? You know, it, it'd probably be something fun to do, too. It looks like fun. Why not give it a try? But, yeah, I was totally... Um, I, I, I was totally mercenary, and it's worked out. I've got a fairly popular show. Uh, I still, at this point, have to buy about half the games that I run through. Um, but, uh, fortunately, the fans of the show make that possible, and I, I say, once again, thanks to everybody for helping make our dreams come true. Yeah. Um, so, and thanks for asking, Ricky. So now, we move on to Ed who uh, noted that I mentioned that I had participated in voting for the Dice Tower Awards a couple of years ago. Why did I stop? Ed would like to know. He's just curious. Well, there were a couple of things that kind of bugged me. One, at that time, the, uh, the whole process was run through Yahoo Groups. And I don't know if you've ever used Yahoo Groups, but oh my gosh, it's terrible. It's got, you know, it has got an iTunes level of epically poor user interface decisions that just makes it practically unusable. It was just so atrocious. And I went in thinking, wow, this is going to be so much fun doing behind the scenes arguing and debating. And we're going to be, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm going to fight my corner and I'm going to make the Dice Tower Wars more Eurocentric and I'm going to fight the fight. And, and I got there and nobody seemed to be interested to even talk about it. Everybody just, oh, well, I nominate this, I nominate this. And I'm like, and I'm, yeah, but let's talk about it. Like, whatever. I'll, I'll vote. And I'm like, oh. Well, this isn't very much fun. Now, as it turns out, I don't think that was necessarily a reflection of the people who were involved behind the scenes. It was a reflection of that really, really gosh-awful, terrible Yahoo Groups interface that just made actual any sort of conversation just like pulling teeth. So I was kind of bummed by that. But then the other problem was Tom Institute has this voting system instituted, which really rubbed me the wrong way. I, I did not care for it at all because, you know, we, we finally had our final nominations. We all had to make our votes. And so I, I, I sent in my votes and I said, okay, yeah, this is the one for best game of the year. This is the one for best uh, family game of the year, which, by the way, officially is gateway game of the year. I have no, that's another thing that drives me nuts that Tom refuses to actually identify his own personal descriptions for what all those categories means. Even though he has them in his head, he, he never really comes out and says, oh, right, in his head, family is synonymous anonymous with gateway he just doesn't use gateway because he's thinking family looks better on a sticker that might get put on the box so there's there, that stuff that just that ah, drives me nuts and if I, if I can't do it the way I want to do it, it I, I just don't want to be around it so there was that as well <laughs> but he has this thing where okay I, I voted and I voted yeah this is the best of this from the choices I have this is the best of this the best of this and he wrote back saying well you know you should really pick your favorite three like why of this list this is the best one and he said, well, you know, if you, if you don't pick three, you're actually going to, it's actually going to knock your standings down. You really need to pick three. And I'm like, but I don't want to pick three. I don't want to contribute to one that I don't think is the best. And we kind of went back and forth on it for a bit. And he couldn't convince me and I couldn't convince him. And honestly, it left such a bad taste in my mouth. I, you know, and again, it's nothing against Tom. It's nothing against the people who were involved. It's just like, I was like, ah, this is not what I was hoping for. I don't really like how... I, I don't like some of these decisions. Nobody's arguing, and, and you know, we're not having debates. It's just, well... So I just said, oh, well, thanks. It was nice. And 
and then I just opted not to go back next year. Now, my understanding is since then, they have switched over to Facebook, and now apparently there are what I was hoping for, the big, raucous, rollicking, you know, you're crazy, you're crazy, that isn't that, this is that, and the other thing. Um, whereas when I was trying to do it, I think I just kind of annoyed everybody. Now there's a bigger group of people, and they're willing to do that. So I thought about going back, but then I remember, I don't believe he's changed his voting system, and I so fundamentally deeply disagree with it that I, I, I just know it would tick me off. So I just haven't gone back. Um, don't get me wrong. I think it's a great what um, the Dice Tower Awards are. Um, you know, you know bringing, shining a spotlight on games and all that. But yeah, I just haven't gone back. Okay. Jason Honeypie has a couple of questions. Mm. Have we played Lord of the Rings The Confrontation? What are our thoughts? Yes, Jason, we have. And... Unfortunately, I don't. I bet you Jen doesn't even remember that we played this back in England. It was Lord of the Rings. Um, we sat down, and you know, it was, it was a little tiny board, uh, kind of like Stratego, if you remember Stratego, but with Lord of the Rings. Because I've got my characters, you know, and I, I'm, I've got the hobbits and you know Boromir and and Legolas, and I'm, I'm trying to move them forward. And you are a bunch of orcs and Urukai and stuff, and you know, and the Witch King and all that. And you're trying to move yours around, but. All I can see is, oh, I can see your pieces, but I don't know which piece you're moving. Yeah. And, um, and uh, oh, is, is, is that just a go- goblin, or is that the Witch King of Agmar? Oh, I don't know. If, if I move up, and, and meanwhile, you're looking, well, is that Frodo, who I have to actually get? Or is that just some other hobbit that I don't care about? And um, I'll be honest, uh, Jason, I thought it was really clever. I liked it a lot. Um, apparently, Jen remembers it, because she just said, oh, yes. I don't know if Jen remembers that she hated it. Oh, you just I did think, not like it at I all. Like, I think actually I was probably the hobbits and stuff, and you were probably the. Dark we played it both ways. Oh. The first time we played it, I was uh, Sauron, and you were Gandalf, effectively, or you were the forces of good, and I was forces of evil, and I just totally smoked you. And you're like, "This game is crap. It's un- <laughs> it's unbeatable. I-, I there was no chance I had. I'm like, no, honey, I just don't think you're quite getting the rhythm. And then we swapped, and I played the uh, the good guys, and you played the bad guys, and I smoked you again. And then... Well, no wonder you liked it. That was great. Well, yeah. Well, no, I, I thought it was just really clever, too. Uh-huh. But yeah, you just did not respond well to it at all. I think I don't like my men in peril. I, I don't like things that put my pieces in peril. I don't want to lose my castles and my things that I've built up. And I certainly don't want to lose my... I mean, I don't even like that game where the guys die at the end. And you have mm-hmm. to decide who dies. Um, so it was probably now, you know, looking back with, with more experience, it was probably something along that line that I always felt that my guys were in peril mm-hmm. because of course I knew where my guys were and I always felt that, you know, ah, I'm going to lose him. Mm-hmm. I can't lose him. And then I, I feel paralyzed by fear. Yeah. And I imagine it was a lot of that kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there are other player versus player games we play. Mm-hmm. I really do think that's probably what it comes down to more than anything else. Because the player versus player games we do tend to enjoy, few and far, you know, duels, sitting down opposite from each other, staring each other in the eye and saying, right, I will destroy your forces now. Mm-hmm. Very few of those we like. Yeah. And really, I do think more than anything else, that's what it came down to. Um, now, the interesting thing about it is, I mean, the game is, I mean, it's almost checkers-like. And, you know, it, so, you know, the, the confrontation isn't really quite that intense. It's really more about the bluffing and trying to suss out right. Is he, is he going left or right? It's a really clever game. I liked it a lot, um, which well, is saying something for me, too. Uh, because I, and I liked it, I think, in spite of its player versus player, just because it was so clever. And Jen, just she just had, like, a almost violently allergic reaction to it. <laughs> um, 
But anyway, those are our thoughts. What is, in your opinion, the best Lord of the Rings slash Hobbit themed board game that isn't a trading card game, living card game, or collectible card game? Well, obviously, I know what you're talking about there because the answer is yes, Lord of the Rings, the living card game. I've, you know, from Fantasy Flight, that game is phenomenal. It is, it, it's, it's probably a bit too top heavy for its own good. Too many little persnickety rules. I would love to see it kind of get a Euro streamlinification, but still, it's a phenomenal game. But you're, try, you're leaving those out. Well, we would have to leave out War of the Ring because Jen and I just don't have an interest in some big epic war game. If you know Jen didn't like a little tiny Stratego-like war game, she's certainly not going to like War of the Ring, and I know I wouldn't either. Um, let's see. Middle Earth Quest is pretty cool. If Middle Earth Quest were, were able to be played in half the time, I'd probably go with that, but it's just too, too, too long. Just It's just too long. Can't do it. Uh, you, oh, you know what? You know what I'm going to say, Jason? And a lot of people are going to disagree with me. A lot of people are going to call me crazy, loco in the capesa. I'm going to say Lord of the Rings, the dice building game from WizKids, which had an epically botched launch. I have no, there must be a really interesting story because that game should have, I mean, it was a follow up to Quarriers before Dice Masters came out using the Quarrier system before Dice Masters did. Had the Lord of the Rings license. Uh, it, was, it was a highly produced game, really good looking dice, a, a wonderful tray to hold all those dice. And, very, you know, really, really hot. You know, Eric Lang and Mike Wilson worked on it. I think some other people did. You know, so a big design pedigree. And WizKids just pretty much just dumped it on the market. No fanfare. Uh, a let's say, less than ideal, an incomplete rule book, let's say, and just let it wither and rot on the vine. And But I thought it was really, really clever. And the only reason we didn't keep it was because, at its heart, for it to play well, you had to play it as a semi-co-op, and Jen just doesn't like semi-co-op. She would like to co-op co-op or compete compete and not <laughs> you know play the... I mean, but that's what I thought was so brilliant about it, is that as a game... It truly captured probably more than any other Lord of the Rings property ever, except for maybe some pen and paper game, the, the notion of corruption. Because it was a game that it wasn't about your characters being corrupted, it was about you as a player being corrupted. You know, wanting to make a grab for power because even though we're all in it together, we all have to be the free folk fighting against Sauron. There's only one MVP, true winner. And so sometimes you have to decide, well, I'm going to put my own score above the needs of the group. And I thought that was brilliant because that's an implicitly corrupt action. But the game, you know, sets up the rules that that is a requirement. And so ah, it was so brilliant. But still, Jen just didn't, because Jen doesn't like semi-co-ops. And a lot of people don't like semi-co-ops, so we got rid of it. But my understanding is they subsequently released full cooperative rules. And I really do want to go back and try it again someday and see how... Because I think it... I, I can certainly see how it would work as a, co as a full co-op as well. Because the raw mechanisms were great. I mean, it was, it was a bag builder. Before Orleon, before, you know, I mean, so that's what I'm going to go with. Um, although it's based on the supposition that the co-op game is as good as the semi-co-op. Because the semi-co-op was great. So, um, Jen, I, Honey Pie, I assume you have nothing to say to that. Nothing? Nothing. Alrighty. Well then, um, Jason also asks, what are your top ten auction games? Uh, someday, Jason, that will get covered in a video. And then I'll come back in the podcast and do a follow-up on it. But in the meantime, it's easy enough to find out. Just go to games.rado.com. You'll, you know, you'll see 400 games ranked. And you can just start going from top to bottom and spot the auction games. 
I think my number one, if I recall correctly, is Pelopenes. Spoiler alert! So, oh wait, and Jason is back for more. Jason had three back-to-back emails. Have you ever been to see... Nope, okay, that's a... Right, that is a non-game. We'll come back to that one later. As is that one. We'll come back to that one later. From Priscilla. Okay, Alex says... Ah, Alex wonders what um, my thoughts are on the impact Kickstarter has on brick-and-mortar stores. What is my opinion? I'm sure you've got one. Really? Me? Go, go, go figure. On how companies are using Kickstarter and thus effectively selling directly to customers and bypassing the retail chain, especially as the Kickstarter buyer is generally the alpha gamer whose business is often a core part of the FLGS, the friendly local game store. Well, Alex, I'm glad you asked. Because, yes, I do have an opinion, and I'm going to have to say I disagree with you that last sentence. I think, as I have said before, Kickstarter is full of awesome sauce. It is absolutely wonderful. It is an amazing platform to make dreams come true, to defray risk, or you know, to ameliorate risk, defray costs. I mean, I think everybody should be using it. And I do not believe it to be a detriment to brick-and-mortar stores. Um, based on my understanding of the reality of friendly local game stores. Because... You say that Kickstarter buyers are alpha gamers, and those are the people who keep um, brick-and-mortar stores in business. My understanding is that is wholly incorrect. That it is casual business. It is people breaking into the industry. It is people who know nothing about board games. Or board, or who? Or I'm sorry, I don't mean that. Who who know they like board games? They played it with friends. They've uh, they've heard about it in some newspaper article. They stumbled across Will Wheaton's um, tabletop show, and they're like, hey, these board games are pretty cool. I'm gonna go. Fi- I'm gonna go buy me some of those. Hey, here's a local friendly game store. Um, they'll be able to help me with that. That that is the you know the, the casual board game fan who does not go to Board Game Geek, who does not w- watch kick track and make sure they keep up to date with all the latest stuff that's on Kickstarter, who does not buy online. Those are the people who keep friendly local game stores in business. Um, If you are somebody who is predisposed to back a game on Kickstarter to get it early, then you're, you were never going to buy that game at a brick-and-mortar store anyway. If you couldn't get it through Kickstarter, you were going to get it through Cool Stuff, Inc., or Miniature Market, or Amazon, or any or eBay, because you are, as you said, a true alpha gamer, and those alpha gamers do not keep, do not generate the vast majority of revenue for successful brick-and-mortar stores, uh, because there simply are not enough of them, and too many of those alpha gamers are too cheap because they're buying too many games and they can't pay full retail and so they're you know doing their big orders where hey if you spend over 100 you get free shipping so um that's the type of person who isn't keeping a friendly local game store in business and that's also the type of person who's going to back a kickstarter campaign because they can't wait they want to be one of the first people to get it because they've got to have all the special limited edition promos and whatnot so if i am in fact correct on that and that is my understanding having talked to people who are in the know on this subject, you know, publishers and game store owners. If that is in fact correct, although you know, I've, I've, I have a limited sample set, but it makes sense to me uh, based on my observations of how players work, then Kickstarter only helps 
friendly local game stores because it allows for the creation of more games that would never see the light of day under any other circumstance, and it gives friendly local game stores the opportunity to have more wares to put on their shelves to sell. Um, now it's still on the friendly local game store to actually stock the right stuff and not just buy blind. And you know, that's why you've got, you know, great people out there like Maggie bot who spend a lot of time studying the market. So they make sure they, you know, but that's like a whole nother topic of conversation. But anyway, that's, I guess is my feeling. Honey, do you have anything to add to that? I would be shocked if you do, but you might. No, I don't think so. Okay. Then let's move on to Joshua's question. Um, which has been asked before, given my background as a video game designer and my extensive knowledge of board game uh, mechanics, do you feel your, see yourself ever designing a board game? It, why haven't you already? Josh, go to FAQ. This gets asked so often. Go to faq.rotto.com. You will f- find the answer there. Jen! J- Josh says, Jen! Oh, I thought it was Would Jen. you be for or against Rotto designing a board game? <laughs> I like my husband happy, so if he doesn't want to do it, I do not want him to have to do it. <laughs> okay. Um, and then Josh adds in closing, thank you, and I hope one day to hear the rest of the Nintendo story. I guess he'll have to corner you at a show. All righty. Let's move on to Mark's questions. Mark has a couple of questions. Uh, congratulations on another year of Rado runs through. Thanks, Mark. Yay. Question number one. Um, which Kingdom Builder expansion do you prefer and why? Any you dislike? You know what, uh, Mark? I would love to answer that question in all honesty, but the reality is, I mean, gosh, we haven't played Kingdom Builder since I did the run-through for it. Um, the reality is, at this point in my Rotto runs-through career, I don't play any game that I'm not going to do a run-through for. So while I have all but the most recent Kingdom Builder expansion, I haven't picked that one up because I love Kingdom Builder a lot. I think it's an absolutely brilliant game, and I am still shocked how many people just totally miss the boat on it. It's such a wonderful, lovely, smart, smart design, and I would love to try out all these expansions. So far, they don't seem to get very many thumbs on the request list, which means they don't move up very high, which means they don't get voted on, which means they're not going to get covered anytime soon. The other reason they won't is because, for whatever reasons, Queen's Game just doesn't want to give me the time of day. Um, you know, And so I have to buy all any Queen game myself, which means I tend to prioritize in my run-through queue, one, Kickstarter games, because they have a... You know, they, they've got a, a timer, a shelf life. You've got to get hit by that date for them to actually be useful for viewers who like those videos. Then, number two, games that were sent to me as review copies. Because I just think it would be rude to, um, you know, to some publisher who sent me a game, you know, they had to, they had to incur the cost of shipping. And, um, and these days, I don't take on the cost of import duty, so they have to pay the import tax because, man, that just adds up so fast. So for, for them to go through all that, I, I feel it would be rude of me not to prioritize their game higher than a game that I bought for myself. And so, uh, and then number three beyond that would be games that I did buy only because the Rotto runs through voters requested. So that's like my third tier. And so then distant fourth tier um, is games that I just happen to like. Um, Oh, and somewhere in there is the actual monthly votes, of course, as well. Um, But, you know, that's, that's that's four games every month of the... 15 or 20 games I film. So because of that circumstance, I haven't gotten to play any of them. I don't think. Maybe I, I don't think I have. So I can't answer. But man, I, I'd love to. 
But that's not going to happen until, I mean, at the rate I'm going, that'll <laughs> happen the day Rado runs through ends. Kingdom Builder will scream to the top of, man, I remember how much I love this game now. I can play it because I'm not playing every new game under the sun. Alrighty. But, Mark's second question. When playing Orléans with the expansion, do you still remove half the buildings? Well, yes. Or rather, see previous question. If I were playing Orléans, um, I, well, I, oh, with the expansion. No, actually. Uh, that's a... I didn't actually complain about that. That is kind of a bummer. The way that the, the expansions are set up is that you have to have that very specific combination of cards... And that did kind of... I probably should have mentioned that in the video. That would have been my one... But I was just so enamored of that co-op... Um, was it? The invasion thing. It's just so well done. But it does kind of bug me that um, Reiner, the designer of it, just isn't really interested in variable setups. And so all of, all of that stuff was... Well, there's nothing variable about it. Every time you sit down and play the co-op, you have access to the exact same stuff. It starts out pretty much the same way every time. Um, and, you know, that'd be fine for a couple more games, but I think if I were to get into it much more than that, I would have to come up with another variant for it, which kind of bugs me. But, see your earlier question, that's not going to happen because we haven't played Orléans Invasion since I did the run-through. We played it a few times, we really enjoyed it, thought it was great, did the run-through, and then we moved on. Like sharks. Like board game sharks. Alrighty. Brendan asks... What are some of the most important features of a great rule book? Yeah, honey pie. <sighs> Have you read any board game rule book ever? Nope. Nope. All right, well, that was a one for me. Uh, hmm. Do's and don'ts on board game rule books. Probably, it's a stupid little thing, but it's shocking to me how many times they mess this up. Single most important thing. The last page of your rule book, or I'm sorry, the back cover of your rule book is your friend. That should be, in every game, a nice full page summary of all the important stuff you need to be able to spot check while playing. And I am shocked, shocked I tell you, Brendan, at the ridiculous quantity of manuals that don't understand this. Nothing's worse than seeing, oh yeah, here's the back cover, and there's just nothing but some art. Or just some copyright notice that's completely blank. It's like, you just wasted a whole page of great turn, um, you know, game summary stuff. Lots of other times, they just, oh, well, you know what? On the last page, we just happened to wrap up the last little bit. And there's half the information from the previous page. Oh, that is just such epically terrible layout. Such wasted space. That drives me nuts. The biggest mistake... Well, okay, that's the biggest mistake when they mess that up. The second biggest mistake that board game rulebook writers make, and I'm shocked how much they make it, is the... Um, oh, what's a good example of it? Space Hulk Death Angel is a good example of it. And in fact, I would say anytime you have a board game rulebook that everybody universally despises, I guarantee you, nine times out of ten, they will have made this mistake. The overall structure of the rulebook will be, let's spend the first three or four minutes defining every term in the game. Defining how every single thing works um, without any actual context of the game itself. And let's not actually start telling you how to even set up the game, let alone what the game structure is, until we get halfway through. Let's make you wade through three pages of, this is a blah blah card. It does this, this, and this. This is this token. It is used for X, Y, and Z. 
Don't tell me all this stuff now. I have no contextual understanding of the game that lets me file this away in such a way that I will be able to recall this information later. This is just a bunch. This is an info dump. Oh my gosh, Phil Eklund is terrible at this. Now I understand why, because my background is in scientific and technical communication. In college, I was being trained to write technical manuals for engineers. So I understand this is this is kind of a standard. This is the way it's been done forever. Old style war game manuals and whatnot. But it's so counterintuitive. It is such a break from how people actually learn. The way you set up a rule book is um, page one, here's the setting, here's who you are, here's what you're trying to do. Ground, and this is how you teach a game as well, ground a player's immediate understanding in thematic terms that will help them interpret everything they hear afterwards. Page two and page three, here's how you set up the game. And tell them, set up the game right now. Don't read the rest of the rulebook. Set up the game right now. Now that you have actually touched all these things, and you have put them in the correct place on the table, not only do you have a thematic understanding, you have a tactile understanding. Now, page four. Give, define for me the overall structure of how a game round, a game turn, whatever you want to call it, works. I mean, a lot of people say, tell me how to win the game. Yeah, that's great too, but honestly, I don't even care about that because I don't need to know that right now. I need to know, um, you know the structure. And then for the rest of the... You know, and and yeah, I, yeah, I guess tell me how you win as well. Or that could have been on the first page. I'm less worried about that. I know it's a really big bugaboo for others. And it's important, but you know what? How you win most games? Earn the most victory points. That's generally what it comes down to. Or kill your enemy. That's pretty much... <laughs> it's one or the other. Kill your enemies or earn the most points. I don't know that it really is that important. But um, the thematic, I mean, actually it is important because when I say first page, the ground the thing thematically, you got to say, who are we? What are we trying to do? What is our goal? We're business managers. We're um, ancient gods, whatever we are. Um, but don't tell me how to win, because how, how I earn victory points. Tell me how to win because of who I am in this universe and what I need to do to be successful. That's your first page. Second page, third page, startup. Fourth page, game structure. Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth page, walk me beat by beat through that structure. So I am encountering... Um, rules in the same order I would encounter them while actually playing. Do that, you will have a good rule book. Don't do that, you will have an epically poor rule book. I am shocked how often this is not done. This is such 101 type stuff. It drives me nuts. So, <laughs> sorry, I got a little carried away there. Um, also, Brendan would like to know how or why do you think you differ from other reviewers in this question? I don't know that I do. If I do, though, I can only assume it is because of my background. I went to the University of Washington in, C or in Seattle for two years with a scientific and technical communication major, which is now called these days technical writing. They didn't have a term for it back then, back in the 80s. Is that the right? Is that the 80s? Oh, my gosh, yes. Back literally in... No, in 88. I graduated high school in 88. And I went to college 89 and 90. Okay, yep, 88 and 90, 89 and 90. So, um, and so, I don't know, I've been trained in this, and this is what I learned. Uh, you know, never mind the fact that I spent years being a Nintendo gameplay counselor. I was on the phone for three years with people all day long, explaining them how to beat bosses in their NES and Super NES and Game Boy games. I, I've spent a lot of time in my life 
learning how to teach people how to do things. This is how you teach people how to do things. And if you don't do it that way, it breaks. And these are things that a lot of people in the board game industry don't seem to understand. Drives me nuts. Um, but I will get off my high horse and move on to Patrick. Pat, or, or Patty, his friends must call him. Patrick says, um, oh, honey, this is a good one. Uh, what do you think would indicate to you that it's time to move on from Rotto Runs Through? Aww. Aww. Golly, am I supposed to answer that or are you answering that? Yes, because my throat is sore. Because I just was shouting. You just had a bit of a high horsey thing. Um, Insert dead air. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to think because I know your qualifications for the Well, you can answer on my behalf. Are different from mine. Oh, well, all right. Oh, so, okay. Probably. I think that you and I... You have have qualifications? I would think you'd have me do it till I'm dead in the grave. (laughs) Time enough for sleep in the grave. (laughs) No. Keep running through those games. <laughs> no, I just mean that um, I am a business person. So mm-hmm. the, the whole Yes, this is of, what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Okay, well, you know what I'm saying. We'll say Did it. You say it. You say it. All right. Um, so I like the idea of doing things the right way and thinking long term and building up, you know, with good service and good product, a clientele that... Um, hopefully that you get to have repeat business with and that sort of thing. So the whole idea of um, just doing something for a year or two and then moving on to something else is just not in my nature. Mm -hmm. I've always been a long-term thinker. Um, And And now that I've done the groundwork, why would I walk away from it? It makes no sense. It breaks your brain to even consider such a thing. It absolutely does. Yep. Yep. But you are different. You like new things. You like to move on and try new stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's why what I said about my qualifications, I think I was saying I qualify things differently than you do. Not Mm. that I have a qualification to answer the question, (laughs) but, um, yeah. So that, that I think is going to be something that we negotiate as we go on. Mm -hmm. And part of it too, is that we want to do more traveling. So, um, we have to sort of figure out how we can sort the rudder runs through scheduling stuff into also being able to travel more. Yeah. So that, that would certainly be one of the things that, might make a, a scheduling change. That's an interesting point. Okay. Um, well, to answer Patty's question, my number one concern about doing Rado Runs Through is that I get burnt out on board games. Because having, done, having made video games for 20 years, I am epically burned out on video games. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to go back to it. I can't play a video game the way a normal person plays a video game. I will always and forever play a video game as a designer, first and foremost. I will always be evaluating. I will always be studying. I will always be analyzing. I can't simply enjoy, and I don't find any enjoyment in them as a result. And uh, yeah, so if that were to ever start happening with board games, well, I would has a sad. So I don't want that to happen, and that's going to be the number one thing um, because of what I was just talking about, and I've mentioned in the past. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you may have gotten the impression that I was like, oh, woe is me, I can't go and play Kingdom Builder because I'd really like to because I love Kingdom Builder, and Jen loves Kingdom Builder, and I would so love to play all those expansions, and why won't more people thumb them so they can work <laughs> their way up the request list? Come on, people, I thumbed them, you can do it too. <laughs> but anyway, um, you might think, oh, poor you, you don't get to play your... But, you know, I love playing new games. I love learning new games. I, I absolutely, you know, that, yeah, that is core 
to my very nature. You go and look at my CV on LinkedIn slash in slash Richard Ham. Somebody noted um, not too long ago that uh, I never stayed anywhere for more than three years. I Every job, I, okay, three years and I was ready to move on. And that was true. Yep. And by the way, we're right around three years of Rotto Runs Through now. Well, actually, we're on our fifth year, but it's like three or four. So... That first year or two don't really. Yeah, because I was still working full time and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I, I, I like new things. Uh, and so far, Rotto Runs Through has not impacted my enjoyment of board games. If it ever starts feeling like it does, or, and I should hasten to add, if it ever starts feeling like it enjoys Jen's enjoyment of board games, either one of us, it's, it ends right then. Or it doesn't end if we finish out that year. Um, and, uh, and then it's over because I enjoy them too much as it is right now. And I mean, they're such a wonderful pastime to share with Jen. We both enjoy them so much. Mm. And so that's my number one worry is that they would hamper that. And I can't let that happen. So that would be the answer to your question, Patty. Thank you for asking. Justin, meanwhile. Ah, yes. I actually I saw this one when it came in. Honey, do you remember the Bloody Inn? Uh, it was a little card game. We ran a hotel um and uh when the when the customers checked in we would either kill them in their sleep and steal their stuff but then we'd have to dispose of the bodies oh, yeah. or we would recruit them into our ne'er-do-well band of of you know and all that and it was a really clever game and it had a very i don't know um uh tim burton-esque presentation with its really kind of quirky art style and all that yeah I and it was very very it was it was funny and silly but very very dark and we had very very sweeney todd type stuff the hotel to house the bodies yes exactly yeah. yep 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 yeah um well uh who was it justin this is a different justin um, so many justins so many justins justin thought hey that sounded pretty cool um but I, mean, I can't play that with my 12-year-old. And um, at first he thought that it had a 12-plus on the box. And he was like, are they insane? That's crazy. He then went back and checked, and it was, a, it was actually a 14. But he's not even sure if that game is appropriate thematically for a 14-year-old. Because mm. it's pretty dark. Yeah. It's, it's silly. It's tongue-in-cheek. But it's dark. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that really prompted Justin to ask, well, who decides the age recommendation on a game? I mean, do they base it purely on the age required to handle the mechanics of the game? Uh, if so, do you think, based on games like Bloody Inn, uh, should they also seriously consider the theme when recommending an age to play the game? Surely you must have something to say about that, Honey Pie. You got nieces and nephews. Yeah, of course you should think about the theme mm -hmm. with an age recommendation. Absolutely. I mean, that's what movies are about, isn't it? The rating systems on movies. Yes. Do you, do you remember the game well enough to be able to, to say whether you would agree or disagree with Justin that it was too dark thematically for a 14-year-old? Gosh, the kids grow up so young these days. Mm, they grow up fast these days. Yep. Yeah. Um, I... With their iTunes and their <laughs> GoPros. Yeah, I don't know. That is really difficult for me to answer because I think probably every kid, every family is different. Mm -hmm. um, so I would, I would be, I would lean towards putting an age recommendation on that's probably a little bit more lenient than, and, and let the parent decide. You're saying err? What do you mean lenient? Oh, I would erring say, to the side of caution or no, leading towards the side of being more permissive. Mm. So I would say, you know, if, if I maybe 14 is better, but actually, you know, probably some kids at 12 could handle it. Mm. And if they have a very involved parent, 
you know, and who's willing to, I mean, this is what parenting is all about, isn't it? It's talking about situations with your kid, going through them, helping them learn why they would do or not do something. I think actually it could be a very good experience builder, um, relationship builder, thinking through, you know, it's all that kind of stuff is really important. So hmm. depending on the relationship you have with your kid or how, how your kid's personality is, it could be just fine. I don't mm -hmm. know. I would, I'm less about making rules and more about people just taking personal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it, it, bloody end specifically. Uh, as Justin mentioned, if, if, if this were a movie, there's no way it'd be rated low enough for a 12 year old to watch. I don't know if that's true. Um, I'm thinking of throw mama from the train. That was a PG movie or PG 13 anyway. And that was a pretty dark movie about plotting to throw mama from the train or, um, God, I mean, you know, you know that, that kind of dark, wicked humor um, kind of approach is really not all that uncommon. What's interesting, I, I do agree that it's very just slapdash and arbitrary. Because obviously, the people deciding these ratings are the developers of the games themselves. And it's very um, inconsistent. I mean, there's no way it can't be because there is no... In the board game, the board game industry is so small, there's no such thing as any kind of unifying regulatory commission. You know, there's no MPAA, uh, the motion picture something or other, you know, the, the movie ratings guide. The video game industry has a similar guide that um, does a very good job of, of rating things if for parents who want to have an understanding of what they're exposing their kids to. Um, I think the only way to get better game ratings would be an initiative spearheaded for the board game industry because I don't know of any board game committee, uh, any august body that has enough reach that Mattel and Fantasy Flight and um, uh, Tree Frog Games would all say, yes, I will submit my game and slow down the, my ability to produce this game, to put it through a three-month approval process um, so that you guys can slap it with a 13-plus or an 8-plus um, and you know, include little qualifiers like includes mature subjects include, you know, or whatever. Um, I think that would be awesome, but the reality is um, the, video, the board game industry isn't professional enough for that. Uh, you know, it hasn't arrived. It's, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So you know, I think in the meantime... As a parent, Justin, well, I mean, on some level, I don't think there's a problem here. Because, Justin, you were a concerned parent. You spotted it. You felt it wasn't appropriate for your kids, and you didn't pick it up. Um, I mean, you did the right thing. Uh, you caveat and forward the heck out of that, <laughs> and it worked out okay. And, I mean, I think board game industry is kind of a fly-by-night. We're rickety. We're young upstarts, and that's just kind of the way it's going to be. I mean, it's a buyer beware kind of situation. Um, you know, check back in 20 years. Oh, and I'm maybe sure. we'll have broken through. As it gets more popular, some regulatory agency will come along. And... Yep. And probably publishers will sign up to get that rating because, again, once you've got somebody's seal of approval for a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old game or whatever, mm -hmm. voila, you're yep. done. Well, yeah, I mean, it always comes down to, you know, once it becomes a big enough deal, then there's the potential for government regulation to step in, and that's when, okay, we will self-regulate, we'll do it, okay, just don't government regulate us. We don't need a comic codes authority. So, but I mean, board games are so far away. I mean, board games just don't exist in pop culture awareness at all. 
So that's a long ways off. Let's see. Simon, honey, yeah. would like to know about Brexit. So that'll come later. We'll have oh, to come back dear. to that. That is definitely not to do with board games. Justin. All right, okay, this is the same Justin. Oh, wait, no, that was Justin when he noticed it was actually plus 14. Peter. Honey. <laughs> uh, do you or I have any funny pet-related board game disasters? Funny pet-related board game disasters. Hmm. Nothing springing to mind. They're well-behaved. Yeah. Well, she, I should say now she is well-behaved. Yeah. Um, nothing more than, um, you know, Tula, was, you know, we had oh, to be yeah. constantly vigilant about when cleaning games up, not letting any piece of cardboard or cube end up on the floor. Because if we did, it would be found in some corner months later, completely chewed and ruined. Yep. Um, Tula ate everything. Tula ate everything, just now, on the Dob, off chance. on the other hand, would get, which she, she wouldn't eat it, but she loves to bring things to me in her mouth because she gets rewarded for working. Yes. And so she, you know, if you get a bunch of dogs alive on cardboard, sometimes that ruins it. But um, she never chewed on them. So she would just, she would come and she does this little dance with her front paws mm-hmm. to let me know she's got something in her mouth. And I put my hand down and a cup it underneath her mouth and she spits it out. Yep. Yep. And then she gets a treat. Yep. Because she's awesome. She's a good girl. Speaking of which, she's sitting here staring at me. So I will <laughs> give her a treat because All right. she's good. Come on. And she's All righty. Um, let's see. Next question will come in the after game section. Last question. Given uh, there have been recently apps designed for cat and dogs on tablets and smartphones, how long do you think until publishers, designers stumble upon this and make a board game for this new audience? Can you imagine a board game we would buy for Dob? You know what is hilarious? What? I just saw, <coughs> excuse me, on Kicks. No, not Kickstarter. Anyway, on Facebook, that there is this thing that you can now call your dog. You mount the monitor at dog level, and it has a certain noise that you obviously the dog learns to recognize as you calling it. Oh, you mean when you're out of the house? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can call your dog from work or whatever. Yep. And there's also a treat dispenser. Yep. um, Yeah, it actually throws it through the air. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that thing. So I'm thinking, whenever I Skype with you when I'm in England or whatever, the dogs are like, what? No, we don't care. She's on Skype. (laughs) <laughs> they just don't seem to recognize it's me at all. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that monitor would work. Well, I think the only thing the dog would care about is that's the thing that gives treats. Yeah. I'm over here. It's doing cute. the sort of thing that it might do to give me a treat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw that too. I thought that was cute. But I, yeah. But um, can you imagine a board game for a beagle? What would it be? What does a beagle do for fun? Plays fetch? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they have the. But I mean, dogs have the brains of two-year-olds, right? Basically. Are there board games for two-year-olds? I guess there must be. Yeah, I guess it's possible. But the, the only reason you get a board game for a two-year-old is because it spurs mental cognition and you know and pushes physical, them forward and stuff like yeah, that. But dogs aren't going to get any smarter. So, you know, I mean, they, they they've reached their apex at the two-year-old toddler level. So I, I just don't see an upside to it. No, and you think about the kind of games dogs want to play. Well, they want interaction with you, not with cardboard. Hmm. Um, or they want physical activity, or they want food. Yeah. Right. So those kind of nudgy balls that have food in them, that those are kind of puzzle games for dogs. That you have, they have to roll. That's them a true. Way. Yeah, you're pretty cruel about yeah those Kong things or that just, you'll just line with peanut butter yeah. and then just leave them and then figure it out. <laughs> that <laughs> I is love the, it. This is a puzzle game. We. They totally are happy to yeah. work for. So food. I guess yeah. Yep, Jen has designed a board game for dogs. <laughs> it's called um, Shove a Kong Pull of, of yep. Peanut Butter. Let's see. 
All right. Oh, that's another non-game related one. And Alan has a question about game calibration, Honey Pie. Oh, okay. Uh, he, t- you know, he's talking about playing with his wife. Game calibration. And one of his daughters, and uh, you know, games that you know score really, really close. Oh, okay. Yep. You know, I mean, the you know, it seems like no matter what, you know, it. it Wow, it's always come. It seems to come down to like three or four points. And if I just made one choice differently, I would have had two less points, and you would have won instead of I would have won, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. What do you think? Is a game like this really well calibrated to reward skilled play and yet produce a close scoring game? Or, after many rounds and a fair amount of time, is victory and loss more of a matter of seemingly minor decisions or even luck? Or. Is that the point of calibration? To make it so that many small decisions balance out in the end among all players and their many moves, making it unfair to call victory arbitrary. Or would you agree that the fun (laughs) is in playing a game like this one and not wondering whether a victory of a few points or a single point represents a better played game? Is there perhaps Wait a, minute, that's a, new sentence. a that difference between good scoring calibration for shorter filler games as compared with longer games? Do you have any other thoughts on game calibration? Would it be feasible to do a top 10 games with the most well-calibrated scoring? I'm pretty sure, first of all, he did not address this to me. Uh, but I will. He opened it by talking about playing with his wife. Okay, I will try and hit some of those run-on sentences. Uh, he did. He, he put question marks on them. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, you were just stringing yeah. it together. But, um, yeah, I mean. Wow. Objection. Leading the witness. <laughs> Let them answer the question. <laughs> Come on, Alan. Um, okay, first of all, I think our most satisfying games are when we are within a couple points of each other. Yes. So I guess I am absolutely for calibrated games. Yeah. By the way, I've never heard that term before. Seems pretty clever. Yeah. I'll, I'll go with it. Yeah. That was a well-calibrated game. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I would have called it balanced, but yeah. I like calibrated. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, God, can you repeat one of the questions? Well, I mean, it's basically, you know, what do you think? And you're, I mean, you know, he, he gave several potential different things you could think. And you've just said what you think. You like it. And I certainly do, too. I mean, nothing makes me and Jen happier than ending on a tie. Yeah. Neither of us have any interest in winning. When we have, like, and especially if we have to go to, like, the third or fourth level of what the tiebreaker is. Yeah. Because we're that close. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we, 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 we hate blowouts. Yeah. Can't stand them. Neither one of us feels um, Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the blowouter feels terrible for the blowouted. Um, the blowout tee, uh, because, oh, that's awful. What happened? Why did that go so bad? So they don't feel good. The blowout E feels stupid. Well, I'm just an idiot. <laughs> this game makes me feel dumb. Um, and who likes to feel like an idiot? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, that's a lose-lose. We love nothing more than it coming down to the wire and, you know, and, you know, because really neither of us care about winning or losing. We just want to have a good time together. Yep. We just want to share the experience. So, I mean, a well-calibrated game is a thing of beauty. Yep. Um, uh, and then to the deeper question of, is it truly reflective of, I mean, is it artificial? Is it, is it good design? Uh, should games allow for blowouts uh, because a blowout means, yeah, you know what? Somebody was stupid 
And somebody was smart. And they deserve to blow it out. Um, you know, survival of the fittest kind of thing. Well, I think that depends on the kind of games you want to play. Yeah, well, or it, like it depends those. on the type of player you are, really. Well, yeah, but also if you buy those kind of games, then you wouldn't want to calibrate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not sure the calibration exists. I mean, I, I, you know, I have certainly seen in some games catch-up mechanisms in that the further somebody excels, the more difficult it is for them to keep their momentum. And so they end up slowing down, which gives everybody else around the table an opportunity to catch up. Um, one could argue that that is completely artificial. Um, the real world doesn't work that way. The rich tend to get richer uh, instead of um, you know, more burdened and slowed down so that everybody else can rise to their level. And shouldn't games be actual, true, proper approximations of you know, real-world simulations that they're trying to recreate? Do you think so, Honey Pie? Um, no, I guess not. Yep. Well, again, what are we doing here? What are what is the point of sitting down at this table together? To have fun. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But if you, if that's not your point of sitting down at the table, if you want to boost your ego and blow somebody out, or you know whatever whatever the reason is, I don't want to make it sound like that's the bad way to do it, and the way we do it is the good way because it's just different play styles. But um, for the way that we like to game. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and also, I would I would tend to think that most of these things are about. It was somewhere in the middle there that you know, it's it's not so much about. Uh, I mean, I, I would think in a well balanced or in a in a well what was your term calibrated game, you could still have a situation where if somebody plays significantly better, they'll blow the other person out. I mean, Jen and I we do tend to play at roughly the same level. I mean, I would say we're, we're comparable. My problem is I am more by the seat of my pants, and Jen is more analytical, so she tends to win more. Uh, there's occasionally games that will come along that... Um, oh, who, is it Skype? Yep. Oh, who is it? I don't know. I'm trying All right. To... Well, folks, we're going to be right back to you. There's somebody on Skype! Okay. We are back, and it is several hours since we were last chatting, and I don't even remember where we were. Do you? No. Nope. No? All righty. Well, let's see here. Hmm. We had dinner. We talked with my mom and dad. It was very nice. Good time. Alan, it was about the game calibration. Oh, sure. Yes. Well, yes. Long story short, we like it. Uh, I think uh, when it's done well, it doesn't take away from the skill implicit in the game. And he's good. Because it's about the journey, not the destination. Amen. All righty. And then let's move on to Ian, who wants to talk about promos for games that you pick up at conventions and whatnot, or Kickstarter exclusives that you can only get if you back on Kickstarter. Things that you can't get unless you're in the right place at the right time, and later on, you're just SOL. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think they're a good idea? Are they often good addition to a game or just a throwaway add-on? Should they be made available to the wider community? What do you think, Honey Pie? I'm sure you've lost a lot of sleep on this <laughs> issue. Well, I do know that when there is some limited edition thing that I want, I want it. Gosh darn it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I could see that actually it would increase a, the desirability of, a, of being in the right place at the right time and making people actually assure themselves that they are. 
So from a marketing standpoint, that's a really good idea. <laughs> um, but from a maybe a gamer standpoint, do I think that the expansion or the the special promos, I I since I don't actually open the boxes or anything, I am afraid that I do not have a clue <laughs> if I've actually even played with any expansion promo stuff at all. Mm-hmm. So I think that's about all I have to say. Okay. Well, yeah, they, eh, I guess they suck. <laughs> and I guess they're awesome. I mean, they do both at the same time. They are in a quantum state of being, these promos. Because, yeah, it does really blow that you just can't get them. Now, I mean... But you can in math trades and stuff later. Yeah. Some things, yes. Some things, no. Some things are super rare. Some of these promos, the instant they go out and people get them, they start flipping them for 20, 30, 50, 100 bucks for really rare, hard-to-get things. It's, It's ridiculous. Now, I used to chase the bug. Heck, I mean, I am the guy who years ago started the worldwide promo math trade. Why did I do it? So I could get all the promos I wasn't able to get living out in Europe and not being able to go to Gen Con and whatnot. And there just seemed to be no really good way to do it. And I was chasing that dragon all the time. Ah, I guess time has passed and I have learned to let it go and not worry about having the 107% of what this game can offer and just being satisfied with the 100%. But that might be part and parcel with the fact that I only play games through two or three times and then I move on to the next game. If we were normals and you know we bought five or ten games a year, maybe? Is that normal? Uh, I mean, heck, even before I started doing Rotor Runs Through, I was buying 100 games a year easily. Um, but you know, if we were normal and only bought 10 games a year, I think I'd care a heck of a lot more. I'd want to squeeze every last precious drop, every last card out there. And it would be really sucky if I wasn't able to do it. Um, or I could only do it if I got lucky. I mean, heck, I, I had to work really, really hard to get every single promo for Thunderstone. Um, including those werewolf promos and the Tribbles card for Star Trek Expedition and all these really tough things. Now, for some people, the chase is actually a good thing. I mean, people have loved collecting baseball cards for over a century now and trying to get their perfect collection and you know going out and trading with people and you know the existence of the worldwide promo mat trade that anybody can get involved in which means you have a decent chance of getting a lot of the stuff that's out there that you might feel bad about missing you know does help with that so i mean i guess if you're so um disposed you can start to look at it as a game it's just a meta game around the game that you already love and just try to have fun with it and honestly, I mean, I think you just you do have to make peace with it because, as Jen said, it is just good business sense to do it. Anytime a Kickstarter campaign launches that does not include exclusive, limited edition stuff, hey, even Rotter runs through had some. Even I, some... yes, I am guilty. Um, because... You wanted those Rotter runs through dice last year. Well, they're gone now. You wanted the ogre dice this year. Well, that's it. No, uh, no, that's not true. That's not true? The ogre dice are going to be available. Oh, right. No, it was the uh, the specific color. The glitter gleeple. Yeah, the glitter gleeple. Yeah, the glitter gleeple. You want that glitter gleeple? It's gone. Um, <clears throat> it's just... It just makes sense. It's just a smart thing to do. And people who 
who care about these things, who want to make sure, well, then back it on Kickstarter. Um, you're doing the company a favor, and they're, you know, by helping them actually achieve what they need to do, and they're returning the favor by giving you a very special thank you that other people can't get down the road. Um, and so it just makes sense. And while it hurts that, oh, I, I came to the party late. I'm two years later. Man, I wish I could have that thing. Well, you know, I mean, there's going to be all kinds of things in this life you're not going to get that you'd like. It's, at the end of the day, it is just a glass green glitter meeple or a Rado runs through um, die, the, the ones we did last year. I mean, yeah, those are cool. Yeah, they're they're really really cool. But it's it's you know it's not the end of the world if you don't get it. I mean, and, and yeah, it's just uh, see that's the thing. I used to chase after this stuff hard, and I I played that game, and I guess on some level I actually enjoyed it. I mean, heck, I started the math trade to 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 take it to the next level, but. These days, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I think I'm more willing to say, yeah, you know what? If I had a nickel for everything in my life that I might want to be able to have that I'll never be able to get, I'm not even knowing where that particular analogy is going, but you, know, <laughs> you just got to remember, they're just things. They're just stuff. They're just little pieces of cardboard and paper and plastic. Don't say that about glass. But... but that's not true for glass. Of course not. Glass, glass is special. Glass is forever. <laughs> but that aside, all the other ones, they're just things. And life goes on. I mean, that's a very, very hard thing, to a habit to break that is so ingrained in us. Especially Americans. Yeah, especially Americans from an early age. And, you know, the sooner you can cast off the shackles of rampant materialistic consumerism the, the sooner you'll be happy and just live and be satisfied with what you got. Um, is Star Wars, or not Star Wars, uh, Star Trek Expeditions, my copy of it, made inexorably better because I got that ultra-rare Tribbles promo? It's cool. I like it. I love it when it pops up in the game, but if I didn't have it, it it's not like I'd suddenly think that the game is... Rubbish. Yeah, I mean, I'd still enjoy the game regardless. So, um, you know, I would like to interject something there. Oh, Jen has now got some We are getting slightly into the non-game area. Yeah. But basically, I think part of what your sagacity about this is, is mm. that we have a lot of games. We do. And we don't get back to them. And so the idea of adding an extra little something to a game that we're not even going to get to play yeah, for Yeah, I know. Time, it, it, that's true. That's yes certainly lessens the desirability of this extra maybe 10% of enjoyment that you might get from having that extra special something. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that. I think there's a certain point where you have enough and extra doesn't necessarily make you happier. Mm. It's And we, we certainly have enough when you look at the, the amount of games that, that we have. Yeah. yeah. So And that could be one reason why you don't feel quite so driven about as early certainly a, as yeah. much as I, not as much as I used to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course I want 100%. Of course I want the complete set. Of course I want the Hank Aaron and the Babe Ruth. And I don't even know anything about baseball, so I can't even pretend to make up a Another. full collection of a baseball card set. <laughs> but I don't know. It's That way doesn't lie happiness. And but what, it, the, it, it, like we just said a second ago, it's about the journey, not the destination. It's about just sitting down and playing the games and having fun. Yep. Not about making sure that every additional little bonus happens to be in the box. Well, and even if we do have a bunch of extra stuff, we don't necessarily play with all the extra stuff. 
yeah. every time. So, yeah. you know, is it going to really make that big a difference? Yep. Let's see. Uh, Ian also asks, I oh, know some people... Well, can I say something else about this? Mm-hmm. Because this is a little something that I, um, I read a couple of years ago, and it's really made sense to me, is that it's, it actually isn't the big things in life that really make a big difference because the big things you have to deal with them you make decisions you um you move on i mean they tend to be big paths in your life but the little things on the other hand they just they kind of can niggle at you or they could bug you or they could you know make you happy if things are going right or whatever but they don't tend to be something that we spend a lot of time or energy thinking on and actually if you can figure out the He's giving me the big eyeball. Look well, like, you were giving me big eyeballs. Up. Wrap it up, when lady. You said, no, no, not at all, not oh, at all. Okay. You just said, when you said, actually, your eyes went really wide, so my eyes went really wide. <laughs> we're communicating. We're yes. sitting across the table still at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, what I'm trying to say is this thing that I read a few years ago was that if there's something that bugs you, all the little tiny things that bug you, but they bug you every day or they bug you every time you go into that room or they bug you every time you wear that pair of shoes or whatever, whatever that little niggly thing is, that is a constant something in your life, fix it. Because fixing that little stupid thing will bring you so much happiness on a daily or minutely basis that it's really worth doing. And, you know, the big stuff will take care of itself. When it happens, you'll deal with it. It's just all this other little stuff that we can allow to wear us down or, um, you know, mess with us over time that, that really degrades the quality of your life. And so that's one of the things I think about, too, when you think about, well... Do we have all of the stuff for the game? Well, maybe we do or maybe we don't. But when it becomes to the point where it is bugging you enough that you don't have the triple card or whatever for a game that you play all the time, then absolutely. Go out and get that one thing that will make it that much better for you. Well, Ian continues. I ask as someone who mostly plays solo and with his wife, Uh doesn't go to trade shows, or has enough cash to back Kickstarters um, when there are great games out there already. So I must jealously look on to these things. So, um, yes, well, it is great to say, oh, you'll go out and spend 30 bucks and get that triple card. That's not always a viable thing. And, um, I mean, but, I mean, Ian, you just said it there. You jealously look on at these things. And I think everybody can agree that, you know, anything that is driven by jealousy is not necessarily a healthy outlook on life. And, um, I mean, if you can... Find it in yourself to let it go and just not worry about that and just play the game and enjoy it, even without that extra little piece of paper. I, I think you'll be happier for it. And, um, and, and you know, and it's, it's like a great un, 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 not leavening and a great unburdening mm. to just to just not worry about something as small as a little promo pack of five cards that, um, you know, let, let you play a, a sixth character. I mean, yeah, that'd be great to have. Of course you'd love to have it. But the other five characters are still pretty great. Um, you know, let's see. I, uh, Ian goes on. I know people would say it's a perk of going to Gen Con or I backed early, so I should get something extra. But really... Does me having that extra thing to enhance my game in any way reduce the enjoyment of the person who picked it up at the con or backed on Kickstarter? And in all honesty, I'd have to say, yeah, it does. Um, The fundamental psychological drive of promos, of exclusivity, is... Fancy clothes. 
Or of, brand names or whatever. Or, you know, uh, sweet cars that only you can afford or that are limited print runs of anything is the fact there is a palpable sense of enjoyment for owning such a thing. It's, and, it's, you know, because it is special. It is limited. It enhances, you know, and, oh, if everybody could have it, yes. The person who did, by your own admission, pay extra. They went on Kickstarter. They paid extra. Um, you know, and in the process, they helped ensure the project actually happened and stuff. There's a whole other meta level of connection or, you know, considerations there. But they paid extra. They feel, well, yeah, and I got this, and it makes me feel good. Oh, but anybody could have it? Well, now I feel bad. Now, that's just another version. Well, I don't, that's not jealousy. That's not envy. It's, it's something. It's disappointment. It's disappointment. Um, it's, it, it is no more... I mean, it, it's, well, it's, it's a disappointment at the inability to realize your avarice, quite frankly. So on some level, that is also an unhealthy emotional drive. Um, just as much as the jealousy you feel for not being able to have it. And it's a shame all this stuff has to come about because of a little pack of five extra playing cards. Which really shouldn't matter to anybody. I mean, when you just sit back and look at it objectively in the greater context of your life or your gaming life, for that matter. And, I mean, honestly, that's the thing. I mean, I chased this, and um, I would get really frustrated when I couldn't get stuff. And, you know, I would do, you know, for a while, when I first started doing the worldwide promo match rate, I was doing them quarterly, I think. No, maybe even bi-monthly, because I want... Okay, I want to try again. i got to try and get i got to try and get this. I'm going to get this. I mean, you know, and, and there were some people who, you know... I remember there was a guy who had the triple card, and every time he'd listen, and every time I would put my best thing forward to try to get it, and it just wouldn't come, and I was like, ah! And, it was, you know, I look back at that now, and I just say, what was I thinking? It's just a little triple card. Or the Werewolf Pack for Thunderstone, or, I mean, there, there was a whole bunch of them. Yes, any point? Well, do you remember, I used to collect Dickens Village. Yes. It's a little porcelain yes. um, thing that you'd stick a light in at Christmas time, and mm-hmm. little houses that would light up. And they're just absolutely wonderful and lovely, and um, there was a really family tradition around it for, for me, because, it, you know, I always got a building for Christmas. And so it was fun to shop with my mom, and, you know, it was just kind of a whole tradition. Um, but I can remember there was always this castle that I wanted, Kenilworth Castle. Mm. And it was one that was made, you know, 10 years or something before I even was aware of And was long Long gone. Print, yeah. yeah, long gone. Um, but finally, do you remember when I found the Kenilworth Castle and we drove, like, to Timbuktu to pick it up? <laughs> and I'm sure the lady bought it, you know, at the time for $30 or $20 or something like mm-hmm. that. And I paid 300 for it. <laughs> and that was at a time when I think we were 22 or 23, yeah. and we didn't have much extra money. But this was a real stretch, yeah. and I finally found one and everything. And this was before the internet, so it oh, was yeah. a miracle she even found them. Yeah, thing. yeah. I mean, you had like newsletters that would go out to these collectors of Department 56 stuff, you know, and oh my gosh. But you know what? I don't think I displayed it maybe a couple times, a couple Christmases. Dun, dun, dun. And I still think of it now. I, I know exactly where it is. It's at my sister. She's storing a bunch of stuff for us while we're, we're in Europe. But I.e., just more stuff. It's just more stuff. Amazing. Which, as we previously uh, established, does not apply to glass. <laughs> right. Glass makes your life better in all <laughs> yes, ways. Yes, in all ways. So, better. yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough subject. Yeah, and, but it's, uh, not, it's not just only games. It's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, that's, that's my feeling. That's the... That's the decision I had to come to for myself. And as previously admitted, it helps 
that I'm in a really weird situation. But honestly, I think even if I had never picked up that iPhone to start filming Route or Runs Through, I would have eventually gotten to this point anyway. And I would have just gotten to the point where, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy for what I have. I'm not going to worry if I don't have every little bit and bob. As long as I'm having fun, my, the absence of one little thing, I'm not going to let it ruin my fun. So that's pretty much how I look at it. And I do not hold, and I, I quite said, quite frankly, anytime I see a Kickstarter that doesn't offer um, exclusive limited edition promos, I just think they're being silly. I, I, I totally think they should. Well, they take away it's, the urgency, don't they? Yeah, yeah. If there's not some reason to invest or now, mm-hmm. why would you? Yeah. It, it, Jen, Jen started out by saying, it's just good business sense. Yep. And so I, I do not, I, you know, I, it, it's, you know, it's not my problem that they're actually trying to do the best they can for their business. It's not just because of my jealousy and my avarice that they should put what is best for their bottom line on hold. That doesn't work for me. Um, well, you're talking about it from two different standpoints. Mm-hmm. You're talking about it from a personal standpoint and from a business standpoint. Yep, yep, yep. So, so but thanks for asking, Ian. I don't know if that helps at all. Um, but... That's it, honey. We have finished with the game-related questions, <laughs> and it is now almost 9 p.m. Are we going to uh, go back and do the personal-related stuff that we skipped, or are we going to save that till tomorrow? Um, I'm not sure. What do you feel like? We'll let you know in a minute, folks. Okay. Okay, everybody. We have decided to burn the midnight oil and get this done Mostly because Jen is still working on all those gamer bags. She really wants to get these last few assembled. Yep. So we can get them gone. Um, we'll get them mailed on Monday, hopefully. Yes, yes. That would be nice. Yep. Jen has deployed all of her workers. She <laughs> has deployed a worker to the an- question answering space and a worker to the bag assembly space. Yep. She is now going to resolve these actions. And actually, she's, she's reserved spots at the gluing station as well. Indeed. So... First question actually uh, came from two different people at the same time. Andrew and... Oh, where's the other one? Why can't I find it? Oh, and Rob. Both wanted to ask about my life on a boat. Um, Specifically, Rob said, Hey, someone someone who's considering moving onto a sailboat in the Pacific Northwest, I want to hear more about your childhood on a boat. You said your father built it. What kind of boat was it? Did you travel on it? Pros and cons. And where was Andrew? Andrew said, Can you tell me a bit more about the experience? When, where, what kind of boat? Did you enjoy it? Boat, boat, boat. Boat, boat, boat. Okay. My dad decided, must have been when I was three, I guess, because I certainly wasn't consulted, um, <laughs> that he wanted to build, with his own two hands, a sailboat and sail around the world. Because he read some book in the 60s uh, about some guy who did exactly that and it inspired him and it kind of became his life's mission. Uh, and so, when I was five, we moved to Knight's Landing, California, where we were able to... I don't know if we rented our own. I was a kid. I didn't know. But we uh, had a house that had a big, gigantic plot of land, like a whole extra lot that was just completely empty. And so my dad taught himself how to weld, taught himself how to... Well, taught himself everything. He had you know, been in the Navy um, in his younger years. Of course, he was still in his... I guess it must have been his late 20s at that point. And taught himself everything he needed to know to build a 42-foot sailboat. Steel hull 
um, named The Whatever. <laughs> and, that is uh, so your dad. That is so my dad. And, uh, you know, it took him, I mean, gosh, it must have taken him, I guess, four years or so. Because I think we moved on to it when I was maybe nine, maybe eight, maybe eight or nine. I'm not really quite sure. But I, I seem to recall him working on it ever since I was in kindergarten, which means it must have started when I was around five. And I think it must take him three or four years. Although, to be honest, he never actually finished it. But we did, he did get it to a point. You know, and again, this is back in the 70s. You know, he had to, I mean, there was no internet. There was no nothing. But, you know, my dad was just that kind of guy. He was an incredibly handy guy. He reminds me of that old Mike Myers Saturday Night Live sketch, you know, middle-aged man, you know, the guy who can do anything. And they, what about your gut? I'm working on it. Uh, that was a good sketch. I don't know why I always I have failed to become middle-aged man. Because you have me. I, yeah, there you go. That's um, yeah. What was the arch nemesis of middle-aged man? Because it was a self-empowered, independent woman or something like that. Anyway, um, so uh, Dad built it. We moved on it. And we lived on it for, it must have been four or five years. Again, I don't have an exact timeline because I was a little kid. And I just didn't concern myself with the passage of time other than to mark my birthdays. So we, uh, and, and when I say it wasn't finished, um, it mostly was. I mean, we had the mass, We had all the rigging. Uh, it was totally livable. It was me, my mom, my dad, and my brother Ryan, my younger brother Ryan, who was uh, three years younger than me. We lived with a big German shepherd named Boatnik and a little tiny, I don't know if it was a Lhasa, but some little lap dog named Wiggles. And Wiggles. we were all squished into this 42-foot steel hull sailboat for, must have been four, four years, maybe five years, um, living in the California Delta. Um, moving from marina to marina with my dad commuting to work. He worked at AT&T for his entire adult professional career. Sometimes he'd have to drive two hours there and back to get out to whatever slew we were happening to be living in that week out in the middle of nowhere. Why did you move so often? Um, at this point, you'd have to ask my mom. Mm -hmm. uh, I, again, I was not consulted on these things. <laughs> <laughs> they were not checking with me and Ryan about, well, what do you guys think we should do? We were just along for the ride. But, um, you know, it was a, I, I guess it was a big adventure. It was interesting. Before we moved on the boat, you know, um, when I was living in Knight's Landing, I was a really popular outgoing kid. Uh, you know, a straight A student, really involved in sports. You know, I was kind of, on, I think, on the track to being one of those, you know, smart, jock, popular, homecoming king type kids. You know, because everybody knew me, everybody loved me, all my teachers loved me and all that. And I would, and, um, but then we moved on the boat. Um, we, where, I, where was it? Was it Rio Vista? I don't remember exactly where, but the, oh, Island Marina, wherever that is, we did, we did try to keep both my brother and I going to public schools. And that was a really interesting experience. Sorry, this isn't really about the boat. Should I just stick to the boat? They asked about the boat. They didn't ask about my, my interesting experiences as a, as a minority. Um, nah, we'll just get back to the boat. Um, so... The boat, it was cool. As a, as, as a 9 to 14-year-old, there were problems. There was absolutely no privacy. Um, you know, I had my own little bunk with a curtain, but that was about it. It was incredibly tight. We, um, and, uh, you know, and for the majority of that, my brother and I were homeschooled. And actually, I kind of homeschooled myself. My mom just 
pulled her hair out every day trying to wrestle my brother to the ground to get him to learn anything because he's always been stubborn and willful and rebellious. Whereas while they were off in the back of the boat fighting, I'd just be up in the bow reading whatever I was supposed to read from the correspondence course that mom taught us out of. And I pretty much I just taught myself. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, when I was 12, I was a certified scuba diver, um, you know, working in the marina, doing dives for people who lost their keys and stuff like that. And I mean, I, 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 I lived all year round in the water. Um, so did Ryan. I mean, we were just, you know, as, as comfortable. I mean, so you know, we, we were a small type family. Neither Ryan or I really had any other friends because there just weren't any other kids around and we weren't going to school. And that did change me fundamentally. I think, um, you know, put me on a different path in life, but I have no complaints because I'm pretty happy with where I ended up. And, uh, yeah, I, it was, it was like living in a mobile home really because, while the boat was, for, I think, for the most part, seaworthy, the big thing we never finished was the sails. And I have very, very fond remembrances of just taking these big, gigantic sheets of canvas out into fields, out in um, you know Vallejo County and whatnot, and spreading them all over these big, uh, you know, fallow farmlands in in the off season. And me, mom, Ryan, and dad all just working our separate corners, sewing these sails up. And again, I couldn't tell you why we never got it finished. But uh, it was great. And, you know, I, I, it was a really odd childhood. It definitely changed me. Uh, it definitely changed Ryan. I'm sure it changed all of us. And uh, I can't really tell you much about the specifics. About the, the furthest, about, about the most exciting it ever got was at one point we were in dry dock. Yeah, that was when we were in Vallejo. And we were in dry dock and we spent like six months out of the water, still living in it, um, having to, whenever we, you know, I have to go to the bathroom, we'd have to climb down a 20 foot ladder. And it was amazing. Boatnik, our German shepherd could run face down that ladder, even though it was incredibly steep incline and could climb back up it. She was a clever dog, a great dog. But but, um, we we were out to do, you know, haul repair and whatnot. But I remember when we were done with that and we finally put back in, um, you know, just puttering around San Francisco Bay. That was, I think, the biggest, you know, with some swells on a windy day and all that. But, you know, we, we never really got seaworthy. We never really quite realized that dream. And I remember at one point what I was told was my dad had gone and spent the weekend at his brother's house somewhere. Uh, for whatever reason, I have no idea why. And that weekend there had been a really big thunderstorm. And when my dad came back the next day and he said, yeah, I, I slept like a baby through that thunderstorm. Um, I didn't hear all the tackle slapping against the mast. I didn't hear all the rain pattering just, you know, three feet above my head. I think we're done with this. And so he very promptly found uh, and sold it to a couple of guys from South Africa who decided, well, we're going to finish what you started, sir. And they actually did finish it. And last we knew, they sailed that thing halfway across the world to South Africa. Uh, I've always been interested to know what happened. You know, I'm, I'm... is it still out there somewhere? Is it still afloat? I, I would love to see that boat again someday, but it's long, long gone. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, sorry, I can't give more of a mature re- report to what it was like. I mean, I can only give you my personal experience as a, as a young kid who it was just what life was like. I didn't know any better. Um, and that was it. Do you have any questions about the boat, honey pie? Or shall I move on to the next one? Mm, I've heard most of the stories about the boat. Yep, yep. But I'm sure somebody will now ask you about your 
your experiences as a minority. Remember, so, folks, all, uh, all questions to questions at rotto.com. No topic is uh, too tough to topic to tackle. All righty, so back to Peter, who had asked about pet board games and whatnot. He also asked, you all have talked about your love of dogs, but have you ever owned or been owned by <laughs> a cat? Ooh. The board game community seems to be very anti-cat. Tom Vassal of the Dice Tower springs to mind, but I can never understand why. Um, Maybe cats jump up on tables and wreck cats. Pro- that's a very. You know, he was the one who actually pointed out the problems with cats. There you go. Maybe you actually answered your own question, Peter, as to why the board game community as a whole is anti-cat. Said cats do not respect your personal board game space. Um, I had uh, when we lived in Night's Landing. I we got two cats, a orange tabby cat who I named Shazam. 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 After the 70s uh, TV show, the live-action Shazam show, the Shazam Isis Hour. I'm sure everybody remembers. Oh, Mighty Isis. Oh, Mighty Isis. Yep. Um, uh, That kind of surprised me. I didn't know Jim was going to pull that out of there. Hey, I had a jewelry kit as a kid with plastic jewelry. You'd made it and you'd like snap things on. Mm -hmm. It was the Oh, Mighty Isis (laughs) jewelry maker thing. Folks, of course, have no idea what we're talking about, but they can go check YouTube, I'm sure. And see just how terrible our children's entertainment was back then. Um, but, uh, and then we, and uh, Sesame was a bobtail calico cat. And I have to admit, I have no idea what happened to Shazam. She was a good cat, but we had Sesame until, I mean, you know, she grew and died um, when I, gosh, we must have had her for 10 or 12 years, I guess. I think she died when I was in high school. I remember we had, when she died, we went out and buried her, and that was all very sad. Um, and I've never had a cat since then, but Sesame was an awesome cat. You know, we I remember when I was young, she had kittens, and I just remember being just absolutely amazed by her. Um, you know, just standing up to like really big dogs that were like five times her size and making them back down. And yeah, she was just an awesome cat. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. Um, I guess Jen and I are still just as core dog. I mean, I, I I have nothing against cats. I think they're yeah, great. They're great. Um, yeah. Honestly, I don't know why we don't have a cat. I guess just because we have dogs. I mean, having the dogs was, is almost an accident. I grew up with dogs, too. I grew up with dogs and cats, living on a little tiny boat. I, yeah, um, Sesame and Boatnik and Wiggles and all of us on the 42-foot steel hull. <laughs> um, but you, I think you said you, you didn't really have dogs much growing up, right? Oh, we did occasionally, but mom actually is, my mom is very much a cat person. Yeah. So we always had cats. Yeah, yeah. In fact, when I was a kid... I always would choose the black and gray striped ones, you know, usually with a white bibber and white mm-hmm. paw tips and things. And the first one I had was named Pizza. And so after that, you know, because cats kind of come and go a bit. Um, <laughs> no, they don't. Yeah, they do. Sesame doesn't come and go. Sesame was there. Well, you had an unusual cat. But we had, I guess, outdoor cats more than indoor cats. Mm. Anyway, I had Pizza 1 through 7. <laughs> In my childhood. So, I guess that would answer... Um, I mean, you obviously have a very cavalier attitude towards your cats. They come, they go. They're their own people. Well, no, I mean, Mom always had cats in the house as well. It's just... That's weird. Yeah, I, I, I cannot think of Sesame that way. Yeah, she was a big part of our family. Um, but, uh, yeah, but... And, you know, we got Scuttle. Yeah. Because, I don't know why, it was totally your initiative. It was me. Baby. Oh, and yeah. you just saw an ad in the classifieds, I guess? Well, you know, Lhasa Opsa Pupsies? Why did you even do it? 
We were talking about it, actually. Were we? Yeah, yeah. it's all a blur to me. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, so the mister and I lived together in more sin. By, by that, you mean me. Yeah, you're my yeah. mister. Yeah, okay. I'm your missus. Yes, all right. Just so we're clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, where we were in the apartment when we first lived together, we couldn't have a dog. Yeah. And then we rented a house, which I think we could, but we were both working a lot and weird hours and stuff. Yeah. So that wouldn't work. But when we bought our house, finally, we felt we were stable enough. Mm-hmm. And we were, we'd been married a year or something by that point. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely had a hankering for a dog. And so I kept an eye out. And when I saw one in the paper, we went and we, we rushed. It wasn't too far away, maybe a mile or two away. Mm-hmm. And we got there in front of somebody. And I can remember this person just standing there like practically perched on my shoulder because they wanted to look at these puppies, but we'd gotten there first, so we could have, a, you know, we were, get to have first uh-huh. choice. And we chose Scuttle. Yeah, she was a good little girl. She was an awesome dog. Yeah, so, but, I mean, so why don't we have cats? Obviously, we both have a history with cats. Me, a very deep, loving relationship with cats. <laughs> you, a very casual, eh, they come, they go. They do. Relationship. Yeah. Um, I think... I mean, they rip up furniture. Yeah. That's a problem, and you don't want to declaw them, and so... And you know, there's issues like that. Litter box, so well, I mean, that's no worse than having to pick up dog crap when you take him for I a walk. I think it is because the litter box is inside. And you can have poop in your house all the time. It doesn't have to be inside. I mean, the cat can go through a dog flap just as well as a dog. Yeah, but then if it's going to go through a dog flap, it might as well go poop outside. Yeah, I don't know. Can you train a cat to... I don't know. Yeah. Um, if you have the litter box outside yeah. or whatever, they just go outside. I don't know. We had a litter box for Sesame in that boat the whole time. It was never really a problem. Well, you were a kid. You probably never noticed, but it probably stank all the time. It was awful. <laughs> so that's why we don't have cats. Litter well, box. Yeah, that's it. And also, I'm sure they've made new breakthroughs in litter box technology. They have. There's also in the last like special lifters and sifters and things. Mm-hmm. But um, the other thing is, I really don't like it when cats poop in my garden boxes where I'm growing my vegetables. Mm-hmm. And cats do that. They love loose soil. Mm-hmm. So that's primarily why we don't have. Cats. There you go, Peter. That's, uh, I can't speak for Tom Vassell if that's his problem, but our problem, loose soil. Poop. You don't like to poop. Okay. Uh, Next up, Priscilla would like to know if um, I am a righty or a lefty. She only asks because she's a righty and always wonders how I can use the zoom button on my camera so quickly with my left hand. And you're right. I am right-handed. I am deaf. Actually, it's interesting. I'm kind of both. Apparently, as a young kid, I was totally ambidextrous, 100% ambidextrous. I could do everything equally well, write, bat, um, anything. And my mom says, and I've asked her why, and she doesn't remember why, but she actually trained me out of it. And she said, no, 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 you have to favor one or the other. And she says, yes, I know I did that, and no, I do not know why I did that, I'm sure it was on the advice of someone, and I thought it was very important. And to this day, I'm like, ah, I would love to be ambidextrous. How awesome would that be? So to this day, I am just kind of a weird mishmash. I I am right-handed when I write things, but I bat or I golf left-handed. Yeah, like you golf. I mini golf. We don't golf. If I were to golf, if I were to golf, it would be (laughs) left-handed. Yes, darling. Yes. Um, Have you actually even gone to a real golf course and ever golf golfed? You probably have. I have been to a driving range and golf golfed. That counts. With some work buddies or something. Yes. Yeah. That was fun. It was fun. It was actually a blast. I mean, that made me appreciate that I could see it's very satisfying 
when you whack that thing just right and it just flies off, but it does this weird spin thing, it feels really good. And it feels really terrible when you just kind of glance it wrong and then you just feel it all through the through the uh, through the pole. But yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So the golf stick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe my weird quasi ambidextrousness makes it easier for me. But you know, it's been something I've been meaning to do is actually while I'm actually filming a run through, have Jen grab an iPhone and just film me filming so folks can see what it's like because it is really kind of cumbersome. If you watch the overhead static camera. Um, often, you, if you watch long enough, you'll see me holding the camera completely incorrectly with my left hand, um, and you know, just kind of having to reach around with my big uh, spidery fingers to try and reach that zoom button that is not in the remotely the right place, uh, and my hand completely obscures most of the screen that I'm filming on, so I generally can't even see what I'm filming. I'm just kind of having to go by raw feel because my hand is on the wrong side of the camera. I don't understand why they don't make cameras that are for lefties. Not that I, I'm, I'm a righty, but still. Interesting question. Um, okay. Let's see here. Jason asks if we've ever been to Cedar Point. If not, and you like roller coasters, it's the best park in the world, honey pie. Ooh. I have not heard of Cedar Point, so I'm going to assume that means I have not. Cedar Point. Uh, the roller coaster capital of the world, which is in Ohio. Nope, definitely have not been there. And in all honesty, I got to admit, I'm really not that anxious to go. I mean, as a little kid, of course, I loved roller coasters. And I remember in our 20s, mm. I mean, you and I, we went to Disney. We went to every amusement park we could. We loved them. And, you know, we'd do roller coasters multiple times. But I don't know, at some point in our 30s, I guess, I, I guess it was after we moved to Europe. Right? It was shortly before that. Was it? Yeah. yeah. You, had you made a decision, I am done with roller coasters? Well, I don't think point, so because we still went to roller coasters in we've Texas. We've never been to Disney, whatever, in Paris. Disney. No, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm saying, I think for whatever reason, when we moved to Europe, we just suddenly lost interest. Hmm. I'm just, I mean, because I remember we would still do stuff like that in Texas, which is the last place we lived in America. Um, and, you know, and, and I, and, I, I would imagine while we were still living in Texas that if we happen to be in Ohio, hey, let's swing by Cedar Point. That sounds really awesome. I mean, I assume at some point there must have been a... I mean, I don't know. Is it a coincidence that we went to Europe and then suddenly... I mean, all the really good stuff wasn't available to us anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I or are we just getting older? thinking, I'm tired of my brain rattling around. This mm. isn't fun anymore. It oh, well, okay. gives me a headache. and I'm, I was unaware of that. So... Maybe I just steered us away from that. Jason, you're making us deal with the hard-hidden truths <laughs> that have lain dormant in our relationship for all these decades now. Um, yeah, but I think we're both kind of over them now. I mean, I'm not adverse to it. Well, I think also we went bungee jumping. And That's a good point, too. I mean, after skydiving. You've, and... After you've skydove and after you've bungee jumped, roller coasters just don't have the same visceral thrill anymore. Um, you know, they're too contained no matter what they are. And we've done all kinds of crazy stuff. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, none of them were as terrifying as that bungee jump. That was pretty That was probably the single scariest thing I've ever had to face. It was absolutely insane. Yeah, and you just did it. Yep, just do it. And then I scared the crap out of you. Yeah, he comes back up the... Well, we'll let somebody ask us about the bungee jump experience. Yeah, yeah. No one's here asking about bungee jumping. They're asking about roller coasters. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, let's see, two more, honey pie. Yeah. Uh, do you want to say Brexit for last, or you want to do Brexit next? Let's save it for last. All righty. So Eric, you may recall, right off the bat, asked, "What are your favorite TV shows? What are your favorite songs and bands?" Okay. Um, thank you. Keep up the good work. So, I mean, I think we've talked well enough about songs and bands. Yep, yeah, probably. Um, a, a few people have asked actually TV shows, and I've just kind of just rattled off a few, and you can name one. What's your favorite show of all time, Honey Pie? West Wing. There you go. If nothing else, Jen now has that memorized. Yep. But um, in between, when we were filming and not filming, I spent a couple of minutes just for you, Eric, to compile not my top 10, but my top 20 TV shows that are active right now. I started actually trying to make just my top 10 of all time, and oh my gosh, that is so hard. That is practically impossible. There is a lifetime of awesome TV I have watched, and I just couldn't do it. So to make it a little bit easier, I narrowed it down to shows. I mean, they might be you know on hiatus between seasons and stuff like that, but these are shows that are still airing right now. These are the top 20 shows I watch. Jen doesn't watch probably even half of these shows, maybe even two-thirds of these shows. I'm a TV junkie. Um, she is a moderate TV junkie. But I'm just going to go through this really quick. I read. Jen reads. Oh my gosh, Jen is such a voracious reader. I used to be. I don't know what happened to me. You keep saying when you retire. You're I know, but then I started doing this instead. Well, but- that was the plan. I was going to have all the time in the world to read. <laughs> and Yeah, and I do. I read more now than I ever have. Yeah, it's just on the internet. No, it's board game manuals. Oh, I read yeah. as much as you do easily. Yeah. Um, just technical board game manuals. Yeah. I, I put you to shame. But Jen is a crazy voracious reader. Um, you know, she, she devours 800-page books in a day kind of a thing. Oh, maybe not quite that much. Oh, well, I don't think I'm exaggerating much. But anyway, top 20 currently on-air TV shows. Um, number 20, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's my number 20 because, look, I, I'll admit, it's not the greatest show in the world. But um, I... I am charmed by the interconnectivity of the Marvel Universe, and I do feel like it's, it's worth watching um, and sticking with it. And I'm always hoping for another one of those really cool uh, Captain America, Winter Soldier-like crossovers. I don't know why. It seems that they have kind of abandoned those now. I mean, heck, even the cast of the show has started to complain. I guess there's some kind of political stuff going on between Marvel TV, which is still under Disney control, versus Marvel Cinema, which is under Marvel control. And so that's why there's been a big break, which is heartbreaking, because it was so awesome. That Winter Soldier... But anyway, but still, I enjoy the show. Uh, it's, uh, but it is my number 20. I mean, it is, I'm not guilty, but it's a borderline guilty pleasure. But the rest of these are not guilty pleasures at all. Um, Jen, actually, that's probably one of the few on here that Jen watches. She likes Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., don't you, honey pie? Yeah, it's pretty, it's all right. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and interesting, that's the only Marvel show on here. The, all, I mean, I've, I've watched all the Netflix what about stuff. Agent Carter? Hmm? Well, um, well, I hate to break this to you, honey pie. It's not on your top 20. Um, no. Agent Carter's been canceled. Really? She's not coming back. I like a strong female character. I know. Everybody did. Except for stupid people who didn't actually watch. Uh, because I guess the ratings were always terrible no matter what. And we were lucky to have two seasons. It is too bad. I mean, Agent Carter would have been in my number 20 instead of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Because uh, that show was the bee's knees. It was the bomb, yo. But, um, and her, I, you know, I, I mourn her loss and uh, pay tribute to her service by watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, anyway, number 19, South Park. I can't imagine you ever even watched a single episode, have you? I think I've seen bits and pieces as I've walked by. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, it's it's maybe getting a little long in the tooth, but I don't know. If you ever get a chance to watch the behind-the-scenes making of that show, it is stunning to me how you know they can just be so topical and just turn around a completely done episode in, in under a week. It's it's phenomenal, and you know, it still stays relevant. Um, you know, it skewers everybody. It, you know, it's it's completely merciless, and it's really, really clever. It doesn't make me laugh out loud all that much, um, but I mean, I, I mean, the the episodes relate. You know, what was it? The Richard Dawkins two parter was brilliant. I, I mean, that was that was just so absolutely amazing. I'd probably watch that one actually if you uh-huh. like downloading it. I don't know, Honey Pie. <laughs> I don't know if you would care for how they treated Richard Dawkins. Oh. But um, anyway, uh, number 19 is South Park. Number 18, oh, this is a favorite, Survivor. Yeah, of course. Talk about reinventing yourself. I mean, it's amazing. Every season, they just keep refreshing it and making it new and making it different and coming up with really cool, interesting, exciting twists. And, you know, the the amazing... I know there's so many people out there who say, oh, it's all fake, it's all rigged. and it, No, you, you don't fake that kind of stuff. Yes, they maybe enhance the reality. They maybe you know give us stuff out of order. They um, you know uh, you know they 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 create storylines that maybe aren't quite as perfectly dovetailed as. But it doesn't change the fact that the raw human emotion and the relationships that are playing out there is all very real, very um, rich, very deep. And you know, I mean, that show makes me understand why people like sports because I have never cared about sports. Um, even when I was a little kid trying to be popular before we moved on the boat and I pretended to like sports, I have always hated sports. But, you know, Jen and I, we get so wrapped up in those uh, incredible competitions where everything is on the line, you know. Yeah, well, they're, and they're clever competitions as well. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, professional sports are clever too. I mean, there's interesting. I mean, if you are willing to, um, you know, give yourself over to the study of the game... Sure. I mean, you know, they they all have depth and meaning and complexity and stats and all of that stuff. But yeah, I mean, Survivor is just amazing, and it always will be. <clears throat> Number seventeen would be Homeland, which I absolutely adore, mostly for Claire Danes and Mandy Patinkin. I mean, they are just, I you know, they just feel so real to me as characters, and I mean, just so grounded. And, you know, I know this is a flight of fancy. Although, actually, I know a lot of people complain about, yeah, Homeland is just total BS. It's, you know, completely out of touch reality. It's not really the case. You can go out and find. I mean, there are actually articles out there where actual former CIA operatives have actually gone on the record saying, no, yeah, I mean, this takes some liberties, of course, because it has to, but this captures the feel. This captures the heart of what is actually happening out there. So, I mean, I've always really respected it. Yeah, maybe they went on with the with the redhead for a little too long, but they've never been afraid to reinvent themselves. And, I mean, the last season was abso- in Germany was absolutely phenomenal. And Claire Danes is just amazing. Uh, and Mandy Patinkin is great, too. So, love Homeland at number 17. Number 16 would be Penny Dreadful which is absolutely delightful in its Victorian decadence. So, um, you know, I've been for years watching Jen <laughs> watch Austin um, or Jane yeah. Austen movies and, yeah. and Downton Abbey's. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I like all those too, but it is so wonderful to just kind of bask in this rich, decadent, um, you know, creepy, noirish take on you know Victorian tales of manners and you know melding all these different really cool storylines. Um, you know the the high drama, the performances, the production values. It's absolutely phenomenal. I just really really love 
Penny Dreadful. Nothing else like it on TV. Um, and then number 15, what, Honey Pie? Why am I not watching Penny Dreadful? Because it's dark. Because oh. it's, it's basically a horror show. All right. Um, I think I did actually try to get you to watch the first episode and you wouldn't finish it. I think. Okay. Um, um, and, and, you know, Jen is very, very picky. Jen, her list of top 20 would be 15 um, survivalist reality TV shows, give or take. And uh, am I wrong? And, uh, and adi- no, probably 12. Eight home improvement, <laughs> um, you know, gardening, mo- gardening type shows. Yeah. And then whatever I wanted to watch that she could stomach effectively. Jen uh, loves that kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, uh, uh, that stuff is all cool, too. I mean, you know, Jen loves her Phil and her Kirsty. My what? Phil and Kirsty. Oh, yes. Um, let's see. I thought you said feeling of curtsy. Yeah, yes, Jen loves her feeling of curtsy. So anyway, number 15, The Fall, is an amazing police procedural. And I have to admit, I have never gotten into the CSIs or the... Um, or the, the laws and the orders. None of those have ever <laughs> held any attraction to me whatsoever. I think I've watched a couple episodes here and there when Robin Williams would make a guest appearance or something like that. But they've just never, you know, I, I know there's Lumiere. That should be awesome. But I just, I just don't care. They've never captured me. But The Fall really did. And I'll admit, I mean, I started watching it because it was Gillian Anderson. And she's awesome because, hey, it's Agent Scully, you know, tracking down real criminal. You know, but it's such... You know, it's such a mature show. And I don't mean mature because it's got gross-out gags and, and boobs and whatnot, but because it's, it's, it, it, it is very adult in its storytelling. I mean, it's basically the tale of two people. Um, what was the old ad? Two hunters, I think. There are two sides of the same coin. The, um, you know, the regular, everyday guy who turns out is a really, really bad guy, and the police detective who, you know, but, but who on the outside just looks perfectly normal, and the police detective tracking him down. And, um, you know, and it gives equal time to both of them. And it's just riveting. And she is amazing. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, I think the third season is about to start, and so I'm very, very excited for the fall. Uh, and then number 14, Saturday Night Live, which I have not missed an episode of Saturday Night Live since the heyday of the late 80s. I have always watched it. It is always must-see TV for me. And yeah, I know, you know Yeah, maybe in a good episode, one out of five jokes will land. That's fine, and the other four will all be clunkers. I don't care. You know, in high school, I did a lot of live theater, and I, you know, and I did some study of it in college too. And I perpetually stand in awe of what those not ready for primetime players put together week in and week out. Um, it's just absolutely amazing to me. And actually, having been able to go and see it filmed live last year made me appreciate it all the more. Um, and you know. Man, every time anybody says, man, I remember when it used to be great. Every time anybody says that, they're always talking about the cast when they were in high school and college. And now the current cast is terrible. But you know what? Um, Cut forward 15 years from now, and people are going to be saying, man, I remember when the cast was great. Because they were in high school and college. The casts are all great. They are all of their time. They are all talented, funny people doing their best to put on a really great show. And I just think it's phenomenal. I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, then, number 13. Um, and actually, number 13 and number 12. Practically a tie. Um, but f- number 13, Full Frontal with Samantha B. And number 12, 
last week tonight with John Oliver, the two awesome, awesome spinoffs of John Stewart's The Daily Show, the heir apparent to John Stewart. Because you know, uh, no offense to Noah, and um, you know, uh, you know, The Nightly Show is fine, but you know, they're they're just you know, Trevor Noah and um, oh my gosh, I can't think because he hasn't been on for several weeks. And um, Larry, oh yeah, Larry Wilmore. You know they do good work, and you know what? John Stewart did good work. But the problem with all those shows was having to produce twenty minutes every night, four nights a week. It's very, very tough. Colbert pulled it off. Colbert is in my top ten shows of all time, easy, um, because that was the only you know a current Daily Show, current nightly show, old nightly. Even when John Stewart was at his very best, you know they could not keep the quality up night after night after night. Um, and as soon as John Oliver went off on his own and uh, did last week, and you know they spend an entire week to put one show together, oh my gosh, it's so amazing. And now Samantha Bee is doing the same thing with Full Frontal, and she is just killing it. I mean, these two shows are just phenomenally entertaining, phenomenally enlightening, um, you know, and they deliver on the promise of what John Stewart set out to do, gosh, is it decades ago now? Um, and, uh, you know, man, it, it still breaks my heart that Colbert went off to do facile late night stuff. And, you know, I mean, when what he did was so important, but John Oliver and, uh, and Samantha B, they are picking up the slack with full frontal and last week tonight. I think it's last week tonight. It's just the John Oliver show. Uh, but anyway, and then number 11 house of cards, which I know is silly and it's Bombast again. In fact, actually, I mean, I actually have a very, very positive, upbeat view of politics in America. I do not, in any way, shape, or form, share the widely held cynical view of all politicians are bad and you know, um, um, you know, and uh, Underwood and all of that. I mean, they they just typify the the worst. I mean, actually, I think politi- I think people who go into public service to try to make our lives better are to be commended and to be respected and admired. They're not all perfect, but the vast majority of them do it out of um, you know good intentions. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that House of Cards is absolutely amazing, and Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright are just mesmerizing to watch. And the intricate plots. I mean, it's just it's trashy, and I don't care. I love it. Uh, but now we move on to the top 10. Man, this is going to take a while. Uh, I need to pick it up, folks. Um, Showtime's The Affair, which really, really surprised me. I'll be honest, the main reason I watched it is because I, I love The Wire. And um, um, what's his name? Dominic Wiest, I think, of The Wire. And I have always loved more attorney. And oh, the two of them are in it. Well, I've got to try this out. I mean, I don't particularly care about this multi-season storyline about um, a, a guy, a man and a woman having extramarital affairs and all the ways it rips apart their family and all that. And it's like, I'm not going to care about that, but man, I just love these actors so much. But what an amazing show it is. The entire point of it is every episode tells the events of whatever was going on um, from two completely different perspectives. Um, you know, even, And even though they're showing the, the same actual broadly following the same plot 
their perceptions of what happened, of what their actions were, and you know, how they justified in themselves what they're doing when they're destroying their lives and their families' lives is amazingly fascinating to me. It's just really, really eye-opening. And of course, you know, because um, you know, humans' imperfect memory and false memories is, is, is such a you know, true part of life and to see it played out there like that it's just absolutely brilliant and then of course all the performances are great and you know the the mystery stuff and the the non-linear storytelling it's all absolutely phenomenal easily top 10 but now let's move on to number nine um it's been pretty serious for a while so let's have some laughs with always sunny in philadelphia which honey you would not oh my gosh remember seinfeld Mm -hmm. remember how terrible they all were Mm. oh they were saints um, uh, always sunny in Philadelphia is what if the, uh, the gang from Seinfeld were really just the worst people in the world? Um, it is, uh, you know, I mean, none of them are like, well, I guess maybe Charlie's kind of likable cause he's just kind of hapless and, and surprisingly competent when given the opportunity to sing. But, um, I mean, I just, I just love it. It's, it's just so outrageous and balls to the wall, absolutely hilarious comedy. Make one of the few shows that l- consistently makes me laugh out loud. Love Always Sunny. Um, then we move on to number eight, Better Call Saul, which I just finished up the second season uh, two weeks ago, I think. And wow, that show just keeps getting better um, with every passing episode. And I think. Of course, a big, big part of it is, you know, having seen Breaking Bad, I know what happens. I know where he's going to end up. And he is so far away from that right now. I mean, Jimmy McGill is such a an interesting and multifaceted character. You know, he's so well-rounded and he's got so much depth and complexity. But I know what he's going to become. And so it's just watching this, this slow-motion train wreck um, that is just, you know, Utterly fascinating and compelling. And then, you know, just wildly entertaining, too. I mean, it's so great to see Michael McKeon on um, screen, uh, you know, in, in such a, an absolutely killer role. It's just, and, and beautifully plotted. And, you know, of course, we all miss Breaking Bad. So it, it's just great to have Saul back. So uh, that was number eight. Then we move on to number seven, Veep, uh-huh. where Julia Louise Dreyfus and the rest of the cast, oh my gosh, they just kill it every week. Again, like House of Cards. I um, uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I have certainly, I, I've certainly seen, um, you know, real politicians who have seen the show and commented on it that it's closer to reality than they would like to admit. And I appreciate that because all it does, I mean, it definitely humanizes these people and it puts them in their absolute worst light every single week. But you know, again, much like uh, you know, and they're all awful people. But I don't know. Uh, you know, that's a, a grand tradition of comedy. You know, going back to Archie Bunker, going back to the honeymooners, you know, the the you know, the the thoroughly unlikable person, but that is still through the power of personality and charisma of that uh, actor means you just can't turn away and you care what happens to them. Even though you know you shouldn't like them, you still get pulled into their story. And and Veep is just absolutely phenomenal. The writing is just so razor sharp. Um, you know, just cuts like a knife. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, but then moving on to number six would be Archer, which I love to death. Uh, an animated, well, it used to be spies. Now they're private detectives. I mean, another example of a show that has gone out of its way to reinvent itself over and over again and just gets better every time it does it. It's just absolutely phenomenal. And again, actually, I think what I love about it most is, you know, the titular character Archer, you know, who is just, uh, 
who could be so easily written as just kind of a bumbling fool, um, you know, and misogynistic and, you know, and, and all his foibles and whatnot. Um, you know, it, it could be very, very easy to just hate this guy. But the thing is, he is so amazingly good at his job that, you know, he just kind of pulls you along and he's just so effortless. And, and he and he is having a great time doing it. So it's hard not to have a great time watching him having a great time going on his absolutely insane adventures. I absolutely love it to death. Uh, then we move on to number five, The Walking Dead. Uh, the Walking Dead is one of my favorite comic books of all time. And The Walking Dead is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. The places that show is willing to go, look at the flowers, is just mind-boggling to me. And... Uh, Oh, man. Ah, it drives me nuts when I see people just spend so much time picking it apart over so many perceived plot holes that are never, almost never, plot holes. They are. It is a show that, while it's ostensibly about zombies, it's not. It's about the people. You know, the zombies are just backdrop for this post-apocalyptic thing that pushes everybody to the limits. Um, and every week when I go online after I've seen the show and people start complaining, well, that was really stupid. They shouldn't have done this or that or the other. I mean, everybody backseat driving like they would all be experts in a zombie apocalypse. It just absolutely drives me batty. Um, the, I will grant that the show could do a better job of actually directing its scenes because... Sometimes people say, well, that was really stupid. They never should have been in that situation. It's like, well, yes, they clearly should have because if you were paying attention, you would have noticed this was actually happening to this character, but you could only barely see it half on screen. And so I'll, I'll give the audience that they're not willing to do the extra work to actually put two and two together because the show often won't do it for you. The show, I love the fact that the show is willing to go for long, long, quiet moments where they let you fill in the blanks to figure out what's going through people's heads. And, you know, that the show has the emotional maturity to expect that of the audience, that everything doesn't have to be spelled out. And now, like I said, unfortunately, it means every week the audience goes online and complains, and they prove they do need it spelled out for them. But whatever, I, I find it riveting television, The Walking Dead. And on, now let's cheer things up a little bit. I've had enough of the dark doldrums there. Let's talk about number four, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Hmm. which is so delightful and so infinitely charming. And, you know, I shouldn't like this show at all um, because it just so wallows in all these romantic comedy tropes. But the thing is, it knows it. It knows it's, you know, being a cliche. And it loves it. Uh, you know, it, it clearly loves the, uh, the format that it's... I'm not going to say satirizing, and, you know, just you know, the same way Desperate Housewives never truly satirized. I mean, because it respected what it was satirizing. I think uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend does the same. But put all that aside, um, you know, Rachel Bloom is just incredibly charismatic. And I think um, it's great to have a character, uh, you know, a, 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 to have a, a lead female character who isn't perfect, who is real, who, you know, has real grounded neuroses and um, is somebody who is so much more relatable than the typical Hollywood leading lady. And then on top of that, the music is just phenomenal. You know, um, you know, Jap battle rap and I could if I wanted to. And I mean, oh my gosh, so many amazing songs. What, honey pie? There's the funny one you sing to me sometimes. Oh, uh, I got big boobs. <laughs> um, yeah, Jen loved that one. Um <laughs> Uh, it's just oh, it's it's so so good. I was so happy to find out it had been renewed for a second season because it was so touch and go there. Um, then we go on to number three, Rick and Morty, and I have talked about this one at length in the past. Just phenomenal. Um, 
you know, it, Community definitely would have made my top 10 or my top 15 of all time. And of course, it's gone. Dan Harmon has moved on, but look at what he's moved on to. Rick and Morty, it's, it's crazy, wildly entertaining. Um, but you know, it's, the thing is, it's so full of really big ideas. It tackles really cool, heady science fiction concepts week after week after week. And you know, does it without even trying. It's just so amazing. It just, and that it's just absolutely hilarious and so quotable. Just amazing. But anyway, moving on to number two would be Fargo. These first two seasons were just about... Per- no, not just about. They were total perfection. Quite frankly, Fargo should be my number one. But I, I can't. But... I mean, and you know the you know the tonal shift between season one and season two is so perfect, and the stuff they did in season two, you know, just the really crazy, off the wall stuff that just kept you guessing and just kept, oh my god, what did I just see? The you know, the 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 richly drawn characters. I mean, you know, again, you know, I talked about this with Homeland that feel so real and so grounded, um, and in the sense of place, the atmosphere, it's just amazing. Maybe the best TV there is, period. But it doesn't change the fact that for number one, I have to go with Game of Thrones. I mean, particularly this season, particularly after... I'm not even going to talk about it. But it's just the best. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, there's gratuitous nudity. So what? People get naked. I don't, I don't particularly care. Um, they, you know, they do it because it helps their viewership. That's fine. Um I've never read the books. I'm never going to read the books, but I am so hooked. And, you know, it's got its claws in me so much. And uh, I know sometimes people complain, oh, it's going too slow. And then, oh, it's going too fast. And I don't know. For me, it's always just right. It is an amazing roller coaster. And, you know, when it builds to those big, big epic moments, um, you know, that like no other show does, it's just the best there is. And so that was my top 20 current shows on TV. And now, Honey Pie, we can dodge it no longer. It's time to talk about Brexit. I think you're going to talk mostly about Brexit. You don't have much to say about Brexit? Because Simon wants to know, what are our thoughts on the UK referendum to leave the EU? Are we worried what will happen to ourselves if we we vote to leave? Will you be voting? Um, And do you think it will affect... um, Distribution tax for UK board gamers, e.g. EU shipping friendly on Kickstarter. Thanks in advance. Oh my goodness. Well, I know you know a lot more about this than I do. Again, it's one of those things that, oh dear, I just well hope that they don't leave. Both Jen and I hope fervently that they don't leave. I think... I don't want to be insulting to anybody, and I know some. Maybe there's people who are actually who are Brexiters who are listening to this. Look, I'm sorry. We're just gonna have to agree to disagree. For me, what it comes down to, it kind of strikes me like somebody who's said, "You know what? I've had it with this government. I'm gonna go out and live off the grid." Um, I, I don't want to have to deal with this modern world and all the problems it creates for me. So I'm just going to go back in my hidey hole and get away from those dirty foreigners who want to impose their rules on me and suck all my money dry. I mean, all the primary arguments. Make Britain great again? Come on. Oh, come on. That just makes me cringe to hear that argument. Or Brit, Britain, Brits for Britain? Or Britain for Brits? Ugh! The... The epitome of insular thinking and xenophobia, the us versus them, the absolute worst facet of humanity, tribalism, the keep them out. 
They're taking our jobs. They're sucking off the teat of the NHS. What have they done for us? Get them out. Britain, oh, 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 it's just, gah. And they, they try to make arguments, oh, but think of all the money we'll save, the nine billion pounds. It's like less than one, than, than half of 1% of the GDP. It doesn't matter. It's a drop in the bucket compared to all the benefits we get. Ah, oh, but they're tyrants and we have no control and we need to take control of our destiny. Hey, how about instead of running away from your problems, you actually work with the rest of the world to fix them? How about that? Oh my gosh. Simon, why do you ask? I'm sorry. Oh, oh, oh. And then, you know, this week, this week, they start getting all these polls. I'm, I'm going to ignore them. Polls mean nothing. Um, I, I used to do polls. I used to work for Altair Research um, when I went as a student at the University of Washington back in the late 80s. I mean, I don't, I don't believe any of them. Um, yes, they voted the stupid Tories in. They keep doing it. I'm, the conservative streak in the UK drives me nuts. But oh, they've just, they've just got to come to their senses. Humanity is stronger when we are together. Yep. Everything good happens when you share information and people, everybody's life Work is together. Yep. And stop holding people at arm's length and get away from us. We'll go our own way. No, we are all in this together. Yep, all in this together. Don't do it. Don't do it, voters. Please. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So that's kind of my thoughts. And again, I apologize to anybody who's listening to this and they think I'm, you know, wide-eyed idealist or whatever. I'm sorry, that's just the way I feel. I think I think it's the it's the worst. It is the worst of humanity rooting. It's 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 a movement driven by fear. It's oh, it just drives me nuts. We think about all the things that have driven humanity forward, and it has been people sharing ideas. People coming together. People coming together, people being tolerant of each other. I mean, we've just gone to Istanbul, which is a perfect example of a place where all sorts of cultures, religions, ideals. Well, it's also a perfect example of places where that's not happening. I'm talking historically. Okay, all right. Okay, fair Historically, enough. where yes. people came together and everybody benefited. Mm-hmm. And yes, fair enough. So why not make that a worldwide thing? Yes, I mean, yeah. I mean, um, England, you're going the wrong way. You need to be leading the charge, um, not running away from the fight. That's what you're doing. Anybody who votes for it is a coward. Okay, I gotta stop that. I'm sorry, that's insulting. I don't mean to insult anybody, but gosh, it gets my goat up. It's just we don't uh, even have goats. Yeah, um, but uh, are we worried? I don't know. We've talked to our landlord about it. I mean, what? It's supposed to be two years, I think. Um, that if it does go through, oh, it'll take there, a there, there's years a, there's to... a two year timetable, a clock, and nobody knows what'll happen. We might have to leave Malta. I mean, Malta is going to be a special case anyway because I mean. Uh, um, interesting Malta trivia fact. Malta is the only former Commonwealth country of the Brit- British Empire that voted to stay. Then when England was pulling out, they said, no, please, take us with you. And England said, uh, yeah, thanks, but no. Um, so I don't know. But honestly, if Britain does this, I don't know that I want to go back. And I know that's heartbreaking for Jen. I love England. I know, and I love England too, and I love the people of England. But if they do this... Well, it's like you keep telling me about Trump. Even if Trump wins, it's just one. It's just one president. It's mm-hmm. The arc of history is long. Yes, yes, yes. But, yeah, but this is different. I mean, this, um, you know, the European Union is it's one of the greatest achievements yeah. of the 20th century. I agree. Be strong. Gr- be great, Britain. 
actually lead instead of retreat is all I have to say about that. Um, but anyway, oh, as for taxes, um, uh, I don't know. I, I don't say I haven't even looked at it. It's that's such a minor thing compared to the grand sweep of what's at stake. Um, I mean, but yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. Um, not only is it epically stupid, but it will, it won't destroy the pound, but, and, and you'll, and I'll, I'll even grant you Exeter's 10 years, 20 years from now, it might actually be a net positive, you know, but you will go through hell to get there. It will hurt Britain so bad to say, screw your rest of the world, we're going our, or EU, we're going the rest of our way. I mean, and I know it's, a, what is it, the fifth strongest economy in the world and all of that stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just bad on so many levels. Yeah, long term would be great, but it's going to co- cause more hardship and suffering. The increased cost of board games is the least of it. Um, it's just, oh, man. Honey, we should have done Brexit first so we could have ended on top 20 TV shows. That was much much more pleasant. No, no editing. (laughs) We're going to end. Thanks, Simon. Um, Quick, folks, send some actually happy questions. Um, Or send more politics questions. Obviously, I have something to say. And I look forward to seeing what will happen on the Rotto Runs Through Guild tomorrow. Um, (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, But still, actually, uh, kudos to everybody. I mean, I don't know if people noticed after the last couple of podcasts where religion was discussed and uh, American politics were discussed at length. Those were two really awesome threads where everybody was very kind and respectful. And uh, kudos uh, to everybody out there listening. Uh, My apologies. I realize I went off. I got a bit ranty McRant face there. Um, I will try to cool my jets. But you asked Simon and now you know. And that's it, folks. Uh, episode 13 is in the bag. How many more? Speaking of which, how many more bags you got, honey? Is that your, you got five more? I got about eight more. I'm gluing up. Eight more. All right. Oh, and then I've got another 25 over there. I have oh, but strong. wait, there's 25 more. Um, more well, questions. I, sorry. I think we are done for the evening. But as always, folks, questions to questions at rotto.com. And otherwise, uh, sorry again also, like I said up front, for the two week late. I think... Next month is going to be a couple weeks late as well, but then hopefully we'll get back onto a regular schedule after that. But otherwise, folks, I'm going to say that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Questions, comments, concerns, as always, please let me know. Otherwise, I hope you have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.